Women want him for his wit. The CIA wants him for his body. All Nick wants is his podcast back. Okay, so tell us your thought process. Okay, so we were talking about this with our guest, who will probably be introduced 45 minutes from now after he's already said a copious amount of things. Okay, go on. I can say a few things. You could say you could say a lot of things. You could say anything you want. I have a lot of thoughts, but I want to hear your thought process first. So I was looking through the quotes page, and there are not a lot of great options. And you said, I just want my molecules back, which is probably the most distinctive line in this film, right? Yeah, very badly delivered, which we'll talk about. We will Flatly, talk about. One might say. My Flatly problem delivered. was, I said, I can't change that line because then it becomes meaningless if you just say, I want my podcast back. That could be any, that sounds like any Harrison Ford thriller. Yeah. Right? Mel There's, Gibson, give me back my son. Right. There's nothing distinctive there. The, the tagline offers a little more context. Now, here's the thing. None of the lines are easily butchered in the way I like to cram in the word podcast. But this is one of those movies I've often talked about, David. Mm-hmm. How if you read the IMDb quotes page for You, Me, and Dupree, a comedy directed by the most successful directors of the 2010s. The Russo brothers, that's true. <laughs> the, men, the men who made Welcome to Collingwood. Yes. Which made what? That made $2.8 billion? I think so. That was the, that's the highest gross. When you read the quotes page for You, Me, and Dupree. You go, oh, is this the funniest screenplay ever written? Like, Look, I have zingers. been directed by one of the Russo brothers, so I will not hear people speak ill of them in, the, in my presence. We like the this Russo is my, This is well, my stance. Yeah. My stance is, I remember seeing you, me, and Dupree and going, okay. And then I read the quotes page and I go like, did fucking Noel Coward write this? <laughs> like every quote in that context somehow is funny. And then you watch the clips and it's like, Owen Wilson's doing his job. Russo Brothers directed it okay. But for some reason, those things work better out of context. You look at some of these quotes for Memoirs of Invisible Man out of context and you go like, does this movie fucking rule? <laughs> like it, now you Hit listen me. to me, you son of a bitch. I've lost everything but my soul. You're not going to take that away from me. Is, is, is that from a fucking early Michael Mann movie? <laughs> I, I know what you're right. So you're saying it's actually not that it's full of zingers. It's actually just kind of full of like weighty lines that you're sort of impressed by. I've dealt with people like this before. No close personal ties, no strong political beliefs, no particular interests. In fact, when you think about it, the man has the perfect profile. He was invisible before he was invisible. I'm not saying these are the best lines ever written, but you read them in this context and you're like, Oh, there's like a little bit of salt here. Well, I mean, part of the problem is that the movie is trying, the movie was written to be one thing and made to be another thing. And so yes. a lot of this dialogue, I think, would work in more of a thriller context, which the movie is sometimes and sometimes not. It's really all over the map. It's lonely, isn't it? <laughs> when you're a freak. Uh, we will talk about loneliness. <laughs> this oh my actually God. just sounds overwrought. <laughs> just I sounds guess I just silly. like the idea of this kind of like overwrought fucking like tough men pot boiler. Someone else liked that idea. Yeah. Perhaps a small reminder of the state of things is in order. I'm the one who kills people, Warren, not you. And if you screw up with me, I will cut off your testicles. I will lightly fry them. And Morrissey here will have them for lunch. I mean, that's, I guess, he 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 got what he asked for, right? Which was... A, a tough existential thriller about being invisible about the loneliness of invisibility yes and if you read it on the page maybe you're like well you know what we're gonna have a great time making this great movie that people will like and see pay well, that, money for right it. The, the problem is then there's things like brackets while sucking on her finger alice monroe there's really only a few places in the amazon that could still be considered virgin what <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, uh, but yes. here, here's one that I think is kind of the most telling. This is, this sure. is a, to- a Tobo line. He said, Tobolowski Tobo. says to Sam Neill, it's not what it is. It's what it isn't. Yeah. 
And that's kind of the whole movie. It's not what it is. It's what it is not. God, I, I mean, I will say I was expecting to watch this movie and just be like outright flummoxed by it. Sure. I am. I am oddly compelled by this film. Like I enjoyed <laughs> watching it. Part of it is that it is like neither fish nor fowl. It is sure. a fish with a duck bill and legs right. and wings that don't function. Right. right? It's like a fish it's, it's some weird. <laughs> but like watching it walk is pretty entertaining. It was not like giving me a headache. It was not boring me. I was really <sighs> leaning into I this. I was thing. sort of. I would say it was boring. I was at expecting at to be bored. Right. I, I cannot argue this movie is good, but it is compelling. Hmm. It's yes. It ha well it has a compelling idea. It has many compelling ideas. It has some compelling ideas. And, look, and I was compelled by that. Is this not what we like talking about here on a little podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David? I am Griffin. I'm David. So fast. He's getting quick. <laughs> He's learning. But I'm like the guy who like the cowboy who shoots so quickly that he like shoots like a sign or whatever. Like yeah. he's not aiming. <laughs> he's just like, I just got to shoot it really right. fast. You become Don Knotts. You're the shakiest gun in the West. <laughs> uh -huh. That's a thought I had recently, by the way, I'll just pitch very quickly on air. What if we did Don Knotts as a Patreon miniseries? Was he, did he direct Don Knotts? He directed? No, I'm, that's why I'm oh, saying like, Patreon. Do, oh, but I'm do like, like Don Knotts. Incredible vehicles. Mr. Limpet. Right. I'm like, there are like uh -huh. five Don Knotts movies that almost feel like a franchise. Now I'm taking a look. Uh, go ahead. Check his gun in the West. Uh, the ghost of Mrs. Chicken. What, is, what does his voice sound like? I know he's got a feeling. Oh, right. right it's that. That's <laughs> lemon. He's That's that what guy. I remember. There's an episode of Matlock where Don, the Don love, Knotts. The love God question mark. Right. That's a Don What's Knotts. the one? The astronaut one? The reluctant uh, astronaut? Is that what uh, uh, The reluctant astronaut. Correct. I just like that Don Knotts movies were. What if Don Knotts was asked to do a thing. And then the posters, it's him looking terrified. The ghost in Mr. Chicken, that's a haunted house. Of Don Knotts. What if he had to go Don. in a haunted house? Oh, no. Uh, Limpet is uh, Don Knotts in the Navy? What if right? he was a fish? He turns into oh, a fish. It's a very a Rob Schneider kind of filmography. Yes. yes. Oh. yes. Now, now Don Knotts is a stapler. Right, right. You right. know what he's so good in is uh, Pleasantville. He's great in that. He's so menacing. I should mention to people, uh, this is a podcast about filmography. Sorry, yes. We're not talking ahead. about Don Knotts' filmography today, but maybe later. I'm testing the waters and dipping the toe into that ocean and hoping I don't turn into a fish. Uh, but it's a podcast about directors who are given, uh, who have massive success early on in their careers, say, direct a film like Halloween, sure. and then are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want, and sometimes those checks clear, like, Escape from New York. Sure. And sometimes they bounce really, really fucking hard like Memoirs of Invisible Well, Man. Th this is his biggest bounce, I guess, in terms of both economically calamitous and universally disliked. It has been a right. unique miniseries for us because even everything that had bounced at the time for him has kind of aged well. Everything and, has gone from at least bounce to cult classic and right. some have gone to universally acknowledged American masterpieces. Right. right. And yeah. this is the first movie of his that like has not been reclaimed and for good reason. We're talking about John Carpenter. The miniseries is called They Podcast. And today we are finally opening up the memoirs of an invisible man. Are they memoirs? He does like a 45 minute video diary. <laughs> like like yeah. it's not like he sits down and 
you know, gets out the quill. Well, he was just foreseeing like the rise of YouTube and TikTok. I think he was, it's a forward seeking character. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's what Chevy Chase was. He, he saw the future. He knew what to, what to aim for. Yes. And that, that insight, by the way, of course, come from our guest, one of our finest cultural critics Mm -hmm. from Rolling Stone, Alan Steppenwall. Hey guys, I'm so proud to be here to talk about the finest and most quintessentially John Carpenter movie of the entire miniseries. Now, now, Alan, we've talked about this on a, I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but you've, you asked uh, if you could ever come on the show. And I said, we're doing John Carpenter. And we're both huge fans of your work. We're very flattered that you wanted to be on our silly show. And, um, but you made a fatal mistake. Yes, I was very stupid. And so I was like, yeah, I mean, most of them are for grabs. Like, what are some movies of his you like, or would want to talk about it? And you give me a list. Probably, I can't remember the exact list, but it probably had like Escape from New York on it, maybe, yeah. or, you know. I was, I, I, I was like Assault on Precinct 13 because Assault I've seen every remake 13. of Rio Bravo sure. and had Starman on it because I even watched all the episodes right. of the TV Star, which, show. Which, that would have been fun, actually. Yeah, would have been, yeah, yeah. been fun. This is the thing. You should have stopped there. Yep. Yeah, stopped, you should have stopped. Didn't leave well enough alone. And you made you a rookie said, mistake, Oh, maybe Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And I was like, you've well, said the one that I, no one has asked. You were immediately in the spreadsheet because it was just like, well, there are no bites on that and there are bites on every other film and we're going to make you take the one you never should have offered. <laughs> yep. Good job by me. Very good job. But but hey, I think it, I think it's a hot episode in a lot of ways because this is such a career uh shifting point for him. Yes. Uh I mean, you have the 70s and the 80s are fucking unstoppable for Carpenter. Yep. As we said, even the things that were uh speed bumps for him at the time, he is totally vindicated. Uh, with through modern eyes, yes, and then this is the beginning of the magic is sort of gone. His 90s are shaggy, and then he makes one movie in the 2000s, one movie in the 2010s, and we're out. Is that really it's yeah, 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 because uh, that is rough. It's rough. The tail off, it's rough. He made, he's made two films in the last 20 years. Um, meanwhile, in the last 20 years, six, five, six of his movies have gotten remade or sequelized or rebooted. Beyond that, like a guy like Steven Spielberg, who's pretty much exactly his age has made like 15 movies or whatever. I mean, obviously it's Steven Spielberg, but like, you know, there's something conscious there. Uh, Mike Ryan, friend of the show, Mm -hmm. uh, just told me he interviewed him, I guess for Halloween kills. He's like around. He's around. You know? He's very around. Doing he tweets, his thing. He fucking pours. Yeah. He's playing his video games. Plays his video games. I mean, so I've, I've made comments in episodes about how he's like, ah, I don't want to make movies anymore. I'm old. Just pay me for remaking my shit. Let me play video games. And then some people have corrected me and said, like, he really wants to make shit. He had a fucking pitch at Blumhouse that no, that, that couldn't get off the ground. And it feels like him sort of just... Uh, godfathering and blessing the the halloween reboots was like the sort of concession prize for him mm, um right. he's obviously a guy who contradicts himself a lot we're like we're reading all these interviews from him and some of them he goes like ah, i don't give a shit i don't care and in other ones he's like i care so fucking much so i i believe that both things can be true at the same time but it is somewhat surprising if in fact he still does want to do it that jason blum doesn't just go like hey john got right. an idea Right. I'll give you 10 million bucks. Because apparently there's this pitch that leaked that's floating around for what he tried to set up at Blumhouse like eight years ago. I wonder if it's a, a, a. I could see, I feel like a lot of filmmakers like him who were very scrappy and bootstrappy when they were young and had these films that were failures at the time that they fought really hard to make that became cult classics are like, I don't want to have to make a $3 million movie again. Mm-hmm. I'm old. If I'm going to do this, I want a proper budget. And I could see that maybe 
that's the case, and Blum is like, I can only get this made if it's under 10, which he doesn't want to do. Or I don't know. I don't fucking know. It feels odd that someone wouldn't take a flyer on him yeah. now. But I also think that The Ward is maybe a movie that killed a lot of his interest. This is the first movie of his that he kind of disowns. Like, there are things like Dark Star and The Fog where he's like, eh, I didn't fully execute what I wanted to do there, but it's my thing for better or worse. And this I've heard is a movie he just, like, doesn't like talking about. Like, he doesn't like acknowledging. Yeah. Oh, no one liked it. But I mean, but you can tell it like just, you know, I've not seen every John Carpenter movie. I'm not like a big horror guy, but like the ones that I do know and the ones that you guys have been talking about on the miniseries, like even when he does a hired gun thing, it still feels to a degree like a John Carpenter movie. It does. Yeah. In a way you've talked about it. This does not. It, there's some decent craft in there and some good That's special effects, say. but like anybody could have made this movie. I it's, recognize it's, the craft. I recognize the, the craft. craft. There's nothing there. in the worldview of this movie. Not really. It, it, there's it no does. personality of his that seeps into it, I would say. It, and it's this funny thing where it's like, it feels like he was brought on board because he's, at this point, well-regarded mm -hmm. in a way that uh, Chev Chevy Chase will respond to his hiring, right? Chevy Chase is like, I don't want to make a comedy, you ingrate. Stop trying to make me make a comedy. Okay, well, who's around? Maybe John Carpenter? And Chevy Chase is like, yeah. Like, I want that guy. Like, so... Now, do you think it's that they thought Chevy would respond to him, or do you think it's that they thought at this stage of Carpenter's career, where he'd been kind of in movie jail ever since they live, yeah. he would be malleable? Because this had been a project that they were having a great difficulty I, I think, getting off the ground. I think it's a two-pronged thing. I think it's that, and I think also he was, at, at this point, for whatever failures he had had, notorious for, he gets it fucking done. There's no drama. He'll bring it he in. comes in under budget. Under budget. Most of his films are profitable. And even the ones that flopped at the time pretty quickly established TV, but home video cult status. The, 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 right. The, the fuss is that he will, of course, fight you on. He's got strong his, opinions. Yeah, on the final edit of the movie or something like that. But he's but, like yeah. a, a consummate professional in terms of getting the movie, making your days, delivering it. You know, I, I think that's part of it. And, and you know the guy knows how to handle the effects of the thing, designing these sequences, which this movie is going to be sold a lot on those visuals. It is while watching the trailer for this movie that tries its hardest to frame this as more of a comedy, oh, God. Sure. but also essentially features every single special effect shot in the movie. So like, it just gives it all away because they're right. like, what else do we have right. to put on the screen? Like, here? I watched right. the trailer and I went like, does this movie cost a hundred million dollars? Is every scene like this? And it's like, there are a lot of gags, but the trailer features 98% of them. Uh, so Alan, Yes. Did you see this film in theater? I did see this film in a theater. Wow. I'm, I was a big Chevy Chase fan. Like, okay. Yeah. Fletch, which I know you've covered on the show, was a very important movie for me as oh, an adolescent. Yeah. You know, I've, I've reevaluated a little bit in the year since then, but definitely like just sort of the wise ass uh -huh. you know, Chevy Chase persona really spoke to me. So you reevaluate and you're like, actually, this is greater than I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. Okay. I, okay. A part of it is just watching what Chevy has done since then, both on screen and off screen. Yes, and yes. you sort of, you start to recognize that Chevy, like the thing that I loved when I was 13, 14, like is really insufferable, you know, like in, in, in a lot of ways. And it's one of the reasons why, like, if you read the Tom Shales mm -hmm. SNL oral history, Chevy is the one guy no one can say a nice thing about, Yeah, you know, why he got forced out at community. Why just sort of, he keeps having these big crashes and burns. Cause he's just, he doesn't give a fuck about other people, or at least he comes across in that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you will sometimes hear these weird contradictory stories about him, even from the people who hate him and talk shit about him, where they'll yeah. be like, 
I will isolate this thing. I mean, there's this thing I always think about. Yeah. Uh, one of, you know, many hours long interviews or podcast episodes that Harmon did where he said too many things about Chevy Chase, right? And and Dan Harmon is like talking about how they fucking fought and all the stories about his like absurd behavior and these horrible yeah. things he'll casually say to people where you can't tell if it's a joke or if it's actually him attempting to hurt someone, even if it is a joke. Probably it's not mix. a joke that someone should make. Right. Yeah. Right. And then he's like, there was this day when uh like one of the the craft services people came up to Chevy and I was just like, fuck, don't do it, man. Don't do it. And was like, Hey, my sister's on the phone and she's like your biggest fan. Would you mind like just saying hi to her? And he took the phone out of the guy's hand and walked away for like 20 minutes and talked to this sister and then gave the phone back. And the guy was like, that was like the best. My sister will never stop talking about that. He was so sweet. He asked so many questions about herself. Yeah. You know, he did all the voices she wanted to hear, said the lines or whatever. And it's like, where does that come from? Like in isolation. Yes. He's obviously a charming guy when he if wants, he wants to be. To yes, be. right. right. But mean, it, the, yeah. when he picks his moments is odd. And the the thing I wrote about, and Harmon actually like thanked me for this a few months later when I re- initially reviewed Community. I was sort of comparing because Joel McHale's character is named Do, Winger, doing yes. kind of a, a he's Bill, doing kind of Bill Murray thing. And I'm sort of right. talking about the, right. idea. the difference between Bill Murray and Chevy Chase is Chevy is a soloist. Chevy is on screen to do Chevy things. Yes. You know, if, if there's another person on the screen with him, they're a prop at best most right. of the time. Right. With, with the exception of a few movies here and there. Whereas Murray is collaborative. He is, yeah. He's always a leader type, but he will interact with people. And Harmon said, like, I read that and I realized, okay, this is how I'm going to write that dynamic from now That's on. Cool. So, That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. It's the community thing is so fascinating because he is good in it. Yes. But the, then, so of course, the role is also this obviously evolving commentary on right. Chase now, Chevy right. Chase now, like, yeah. you know, and what a difficult, miserable guy he is to interact I mean, with. We both rewatched that And then that you show. can feel him seething yes. at the performance right. he's having to get, you know, like it's, the, it, anyway, go we, on. We both rewatched <laughs> that show during lockdown. Yeah. And it is fascinating watching the evolution of it where he is so funny at the beginning of the show playing a very different character where it essentially is, wouldn't it be funny if we had Chevy Chase do this? You know, he does the yeah. physical comedy. Right. He's not And it, it's over. also an he's... old guy who still thinks he's Chevy Chase. Right. But right, he's a little right. clueless, but he's sort of an innocent to when the character becomes like the most malicious. <laughs> yes. You know, he becomes like the tube of anti-God from Prince of Darkness, essentially. <laughs> Like, and he's good at both of them, but, but there's that weird feedback loop of he's so good when they start writing the commentary about how much they hate working with him. And that fuels his anger even further, but he remains good at playing. He can do it. Yep. He's it's, it's within him. It's bizarre. Harmon Um, understands him, but he hates that. You know, he hates that Harmon understands him. This is sort of end for him like this, this is really end, right? is you realize Vegas Vacation is it, the only legit comedy he makes after this well, that, here's like, what he does after sees, this right he does Cops and Robertsons right which is like a bust oh, I feel like is a movie Jack where Pounds. everyone's like Jesus fucking Christ put right. him back with Michael Ritchie and no right and yeah. and this movie at least like people are flummoxed by it but it's like he's trying to do something different here I yeah. don't know what or why but there's at least an attempt to grow and Cops and Robertsons it's like this is just diminished returns then he does Man of the House with Jonathan Taylor Thomas, right? which is like, I think sort of seen as like, is that the second rate to the getting, getting even, even with, with dad? dad? The classic, the kids running the show now. What? Right. Were you guys JTT guys? No. Absolutely. No. Yeah. Hidden? No. Come on. Home Improvement? <laughs> JTT? I'm aware of Home Improvement and, yeah. and Simba. Of uh, course, he was, he was young. Wait, wait, what? Uh, <laughs> wait, uh, what? <laughs> uh, right? Uh-huh. I, I never saw Man of the House. 
I, I watch Man of the House a lot. I used to think Man of the House is like a classic. <laughs> have you seen Man of the House? I've not seen Man of the House. But I you d- probably have I, seen Cops I, and Robertsons. I reviewed Robertson. Cops and Robertsons for the college paper. Wow. And I was very disappointed because, again, at the time, I still really loved right. Fletch this and the idea one. of right. Chevy and Richie coming back together. This would be great. No, it's And it's crap. also sort of like the first movie to cash in on Jack Palance's Oscar comedy, right? Yep. Like, it's less about yes, that movie right. building off of his City Slickers performance and more about can we build a movie around how funny it was when he did fucking push ups. Push ups. Yeah. But then after that is Vegas Vacation. Right. Which is his sort of like, all right, I'll do right. what you want of me. And everyone's like, no, we don't even want this. At this right. Point. That's his right. last, yeah. like, I guess I go back to the franchise. And then, that, then his next movie, I believe, after that is Snow Day, which is like, no, Jesus. No, no, no. Dirty Work. He, then he, Snow Day. Oh, he, Dirty he's Work. He's got the part in right. Dirty Work, which, right. you know, which is good. But like, but that's him essentially like, you know, doing a favor to the guy who he sees as his heir apparent. And then Snow Day, it's like his face isn't on the poster. Yeah. His name's not above You're the, the old title. man now. You're the crank. You're, that's it. You're that's all guy. you are now. Like right. He's in uh, Orange County. Like a cameo. Once. Right. right. He's in. Uh, what is Zoom? vacuums? I don't know. Some don't. of these things are like. You, you hate to be in a project that Wikipedia doesn't have a link to. You know, that's he, he plays a, in a movie called Our Italian Husband. He plays a character named Paul Parmesan. Oh, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I mean, the waspiest I mean, actor oh, yeah. in Hollywood history is yeah. Paul Parmesan. He, I mean, he was the voice of Karate Dog, I believe. Karate Dog. Yep. Uh, He's the voice of Cho Cho. I don't know if that is the Karate Dog. I think that dog. is the titular Karate Dog. Uh, yeah. I think that's just right. his, his given name, uh, his he, Christian name. He played a train in the American dub of the Magic Roundabout movie, which I mean, was but, called Dougal. Yes. The American dub. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, he was in. And then, then it's like, when he's in Hot Tub Time Machine, which is probably a year or two that's before the Community. That's the same year as Community. Same year, yeah. It's like, that's the year when everyone is trying to revive It's him. like, oh, right. And he's settled into his older guy look yes. with the gray hair and yeah. he's a little rounder. And, you know, right. so like... His little glasses. Whereas, yeah, I don't... I mean, like, this is our first Chevy since Fletch, right? We've not discussed a Chevy. Uh, yeah. Right? No, I feel like it came up in some recent conversation, but I think this is the first Chevy It's the movie. first movie we've talked about. Yeah. yeah with him in it. Ben is racking his brain. I think we had it. Yeah. He's come up because we've like probably done box office games that mentioned like nothing but trouble or talked SNL shit too. I feel like somewhat recently like Patreon apps and stuff. But, but it is, it is fascinating because he was, it, it is easy to forget how big of a star he was. I think to a certain degree, because a lot of his biggest hits have not particularly like lingered. And the ones that did are ones where you can give credit to other people. The ones that have lingered the most are probably Caddyshack and Vacation, right? right. I would say Fletch yes. has actually lingered less yes. yeah. than it maybe should have. But but Fletch, Fletch I good. think, has been revived in the last 10 years. There's a little more Fletch love out there. Yeah. But Three Amigos, I feel like, is kind of forgotten. But that's an example also of you go, like, Three Amigos, what do you think about there? You Martin, do not think about Chef. Short, Chase is the third one. Ch- Chase is the third. But I also think people just, yeah, don't talk about that too much anymore they don't talk about spies like us no you don't talk about the goldie hawn movies which were huge for him you know yeah and foul play is kind of an interesting counterpoint to this because that's like the last time he was really trying to do something even slightly serious in between the chevy shtick yeah but that's like you don't think about those caddyshack you don't think about his performance like they're movies where he's like part of the soup you know yeah he's probably the least interesting member of and, the Caddyshack stars, as, right? Yeah. As much as, like, you know, at least two of the four Vacation movies remain pretty beloved in Christmas Vacation, like, most so. 
I feel like it's just like, well, that's like the franchise. It's the vibe. It's ensemble. It's he's reacting to everything. It's the set pieces. It's the hijinks. People like him in those movies, but it feels like the franchise is bigger than he is in a certain weird way. Right? Yeah. Yes. It's yes. I mean, he just will never have the legacy of a his contemporary, like right. a Bill Murray, a Steve Martin, even a Martin Short, maybe. Totally. I mean, I, we talked know. about this, like, and part of it is that his reputation as a person is so toxic. This is what I remember bringing up recently, but, like, there's that moment where suddenly NBC says, we'll greenlight community if you can get Chevy Chase, right? Like, that was the thing. Was. They were like, He's we on the really poster. want Chevy Chase back on primetime. We feel like it's a moment when people would like to see him again. And then Hot Tub Time Machines, the same fucking year from my memory uh or at least it happens right after right before and um i remember the being fucking dumb young struggling actor comedian whatever i go to la and i do these like general meetings or i do them in new york or whatever and there was that air of all these development executives being like we want to bring chevy back <laughs> i go to all these meetings where whoever i was meeting with who was like the new junior executive at some new fucking startup production company had a framed picture of chevy chase on their wall and it was like that's the moment where all the guys who are rising to these positions grew up thinking Chevy Chase was the coolest fucking guy in the world. Yep. It was Chevy and Murray, and Murray was getting his credit, and Chevy wasn't. And everyone wanted to be the guy who brought Chase back. And this is the movie that kills Chase, arguably, that, that but creates that dark period. The moment the you're two. talking about, I mean, Alan, you were such a Chuck. Fan. Yes, mm. he he did several episodes of Chuck at the end of season two, and that's sort of like the creative high point of Chuck, in my yes, opinion. Yes, I would agree. And I remember does he play he, Chuck's dad? No, he, he plays like the, the boss okay. who like stole ideas from Chuck's dad. Scott he's Bakula. kind of the big bad of season two, right? Oh, okay, yeah, Basically. he's only in three episodes. But only yes, three. He's but the big I remember bad. when you saw him. When I saw him, I was like, oh, Chevy Chase is kind of putting in an effort here. Yeah, this is exciting. Like there was a. a and then community is, you know, mm. whatever, the, the fall after that. And right. there was a moment where it was like, he's playing ball. The guy is, he's here. We, 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 yeah, we get it. Lightning in a bottle. What if you could get him to give a shit again? Yeah. I, uh, I, to your point, though, Alan, I, I saw some fucking algorithm recommending to me uh, Quentin Tarantino talking about Chevy Chase and why he loved Chevy Chase movies in the 80s. And they're, for me, why Chase movies age less well than Murray movies. But it's... Yeah. The exact dynamic you're talking about, not just the fact that Chevy is just like a black hole in those movies who does whatever he wants and sucks everyone else into his orbit. And like as much as Murray has his Bugs Bunny like wink to the camera, I'm not taking any of this too seriously shit. He likes the juice of playing off of other people yeah, in a way that Chevy does not necessarily. Um, The other thing that Tarantino pointed out, which is true, is that like Chevy Chase movies have no arc. Chevy Chase movies, Chevy Chase does not change. There is usually some part of a Bill Murray movie where he learns the lesson, mm, where yes. he shows that he gives a shit, yep. where he's enough of an underdog that him taking it over on, on the bigger guys is seen as a victory, whereas Chevy Chase pretty much always starts high, high status, remains high status, yes. doesn't give a shit about anything the entire time, acts like an asshole to everyone, gets the girl and wins at the end of the movie. Yes. Like, there's no moment where he needs to, like, be humble. No. Where yep. he needs to gain a conscience. It, it's an odd thing that he was sort of this guy who just like, I'm a fucking asshole and I'm going to own it. And there's this element of wish fulfillment of like, what if I could be the dude who just walked through everything, yep. was constantly making these fucking deadpan jokes at everyone else's expense, 
and just like sleepwalks my way through to another victory. People were into it for a while. And and yet this like you said, this movie is sort of the end of that high status for yes. him. And like within a year, he's doing the Chevy Chase show. Have either of you ever seen that's the, other thing. the Chevy right. Chase that's, show? That's the year after this. Like, I yeah. have seen the notorious first episode. <laughs> that's the only one I've and seen, I've but I've never watched been, it its entire. I think I may have watched like a compilation of sort of bits once that he did, you know, like uh yeah. you know, video yeah. like I've never seen any. Have did you? I have to admit, I've never watched an episode. Bad. I know oh, what it's it is. So bad. It's bad. so yeah. weird. It's though. so weird because like the set is this like giant cavernous set. Yeah, that he can't fill it all with his personality because he seems kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Yep. And like nothing about it works except some of the cutaway gags that are kind of dark. You're like, okay, I mean, I guess this is a new thing. But right? it almost you know? plays like the Eric Andre show or something now, where you're like, right. you're what if a talk like, show is hosted by idea? someone with complete contempt and the audience is held hostage? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that's what it is, because yeah. like, like Letterman <laughs> mostly does not really like or care about his guests, but he likes making the show. Loves making it. Yes. So he likes engaging, even if he does not necessarily care about who you are as a person or what you're there to right. promote. right. Chevy just did not want to be there. Yes. Like maybe he wanted an excuse to play piano on national television. And that's about it. But I feel like I've read interviews with him where he's just like, I don't know. They offered me a lot of money. It felt like a bad idea. I hate TV. I think it's stupid. I don't right. like talk shows. Like I had, didn't want to do it for very long. And it's like, so what's the point? They like right. renamed a theater after but you. That makes me think so much of it was the failure of this movie. I mean, the uh, JJ and Nick are researchers yeah. dug up so much shit. In, in researching for memoirs of an invisible man. <laughs> yep. But there's so many interviews from before, during, and after this yep. movie that are just about, like, he really felt like, I have wrung this dry. The Chevy Chase persona is done. I'm tired yep. of these movies. I'm not putting effort into them. I don't like this persona anymore. I have contempt for the audience still wanting to see me do this shit. I need to figure out how to evolve. Yes. And this was a very, very awkward attempt of him trying to figure out how to evolve into a new era and when this didn't work, I think he just became so contemptuous of everyone and everything. Like, yeah. as much as you hear bad stories about Chevy from the 70s and 80s, the 90s are where things really well, kick into gear. And I think this failing, he's just like, fuck it. I don't know. Fuck you. I'm going to shovel shit into your mouth. <laughs> yeah, and, but it's, and also it's just, once you're not a hit maker, no one's going to put up with that anymore. Right. So you'll hear more about it as well. And, yeah. Yeah. Okay, now here's the question. Do you think that his problem with his persona, the evolution, is that he always had to be cool? I okay, I think Alan's that's making the thing. a, a I think that's I'm, the I'm thing. thinking about it because I think like if he was like a loser or a bumbling idiot or just played into he's always like the coolest yes. fucking guy. But I, I think he likes that. No, I know, but I'm saying if he had what he could have evolved into, like how he could have maybe yes changed actually and like had a whole other era in his careers i feel like pivoting in a way like that i agree i mean Harmon always talked about how he would like pull him aside and be like you're writing for me wrong audiences like it when i'm the cool guy who's above it all and is unflappable yeah and he would be saying that like season three <laughs> you know and he would just be like dude and he's like i'm like the cool young handsome guy like you should be giving me the things you wouldn't say young but you know you'd yes. be like you should be writing for me the same stuff you're writing for Mikhail. You're getting my persona wrong. And he yeah, just wow. like lacked that self-awareness, even at a point where physically he was not seen that way, aside from his reputation not being that. 
I also think it is telling that like someone like Bill Murray, mm-hmm. who Wes Anderson is able to finally cultivate the like, what's what's the more serious, darker side to this persona, right? Yeah. And brings it to the forefront and it fucking works and he has his run there, you know, arguably culminating or, or at least peaking with loss in translation where everyone's like, fuck, you took everything that was interesting about this guy and he figured out a way to not like dampen his charisma, but give a dramatic performance that still retained everything we like about him as a movie star. I feel like this movie is trying to do that, but as much as he wants to make a movie about the loneliness of being invisible, and there was clearly such an anger and contempt to Chevy Chase, where you see, like, he does seem like someone who should be able to do, like, an Albert Brooks and Drive. Yeah, but this is my, sure. He will not give up. I agree with Ben, the idea of being the guy who's above it all. I don't disagree with that. You need to lean into how sad and lonely and angry this guy is. And he still wants to have his little, like, Bon Mo's to camera, where he's like, well, I don't know. No, but this is my larger take. He's not as good an actor as anyone we're mentioning. Absolutely He's not as talented a comedian as anyone we're mentioning. What he was was handsome, fit a certain profile. He is handsome. So charming, so Yeah, charming, and obviously had the sort of gift of the physical comedy. And, I, and think, that, I think he's sort of verbally dexterous in a way that, like, it's fun not a lot of people have been able to do. It's a good yes. point. And that's yes. why Fletch is so good, because it's a lot of Yeah, that. no, I still, I love the Fletch, sinuous, but it's sort of like, right, now yeah. you watch it and you're like, God, this guy is such an asshole. Like, Absolutely. Right. But, but he's like, a funny asshole. He just doesn't have asshole. him in him, in my opinion, to do, like, the whatever, this sort of, like, performance that surprises you. And he knows it, is my other take. Like, there's a half of him that doesn't know it, right? Where he's like, no, right. come on. But then there's... The thing with Pierce in community, yeah. half of him knows, like, yeah, this is who I am. And that's why he's so mad. And, like, you know, it sort of powers I mean, it. That's why it's like the good dramatic performance he could give would be very villainous, right? Would be yeah. very dark. I would assume. I, it's hard to imagine him playing like a kindly grandpa. Right. right. But yeah. I don't think he will let himself do that to a and certain no one degree. wants to put up with it because and again right. and also even though there's that brief moment you're talking about like now there's no one being like is there a chevy chase angle we haven't found could we revive him again like no one thinks that anymore i saw some I 60 know. minutes interview with him Maybe from, to san wants to reboot <laughs> chevy single-handedly ben is gonna sign chevy chase <laughs> to a five-picture deal ham is doing uh ham is doing fletch. Fletch. ham is doing fletch yeah. and ham, ham makes sense in so many ways for that role, more yes. than a Zach Braff or a, even a Sudsy. You think it might make more sense than <laughs> <laughs> Have yes. you guys read the books? I've now, after, I love the movie so much, I went wow. and read all I've of never the Fletch read the books. books. No. Are they and good? Fle- yeah, they're, they're very, not all of them are good. Some of them are actually really terrible, but there's like sure. four or five that are fantastic that uh-huh. I've read a bunch of times. They're basically all dialogue. It's yeah. sort of like, Makes you know, sense. you know, the Friends of Eddie Coyle, you know, it's Which just sort of like banter. And Fletch in those is a, a devastatingly handsome guy, very confident, mm-hmm. sort of, so like you can sort of see certain ways in which he's Chevy, but he is still invested in a way that Chevy as Fletch in those two movies right. is not. Part, part of his thing right. is, I'm like, who gives a shit? Right. Yes, but like, exactly. Ham's good for that. He's a great reader of dialogue. Yeah. yeah. He's handsome. Yeah. He's I'm, funny. I, my whole thing with Ham is I feel like people are rude to Ham now because he's never hit gold in a movie. Yes. Yeah. So I think people are a little down on him. And I'm just, I want Ham to surprise people. Like, I, I kind of want but the Ham of songs. also weird where I feel like every other year Ham will do a movie and people will be like, he's really good in this. I think this is the one that finally gets him out of the Don Draper box. And then it doesn't work. And even some of them are hits like the fucking town 
mm-hmm. or Baby Driver, where people are like, he's good in this and he's playing a very different part. Yeah. yeah. And then the movie's a hit, and then maybe other people pop from it, and then it goes back to, oh, he's like funny when you cast him in a cameo on a comedy show, and otherwise, I'm always going to view him as Don Drape. Yeah, but the weird thing is like, what, like. Why has no one built a whole comedy around him before? Because well, he always comes in and he's like the M- the MVP on these other things, bridesmaids or whatever. It, yeah. it you know, was or, fucking keeping up with the Joneses, oh, which yeah. is a bizarre train wreck of oh, movie right. directed by Greg Matola, who now also is directing Fletch movies. Right, Matola yeah. is doing the Fletch. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. So maybe that's a maybe. I mean, Fletch is what you're asking for. They probably the shouldn't yes. call it Confess Fletch. I know that's the name of a book. They should call it Confessions. Yes. And also that book is interesting because it's sort of a, it's a double act where without spoiling too much, like a lot of the plot is resolved by the other character and not Fletch. So I wonder what they're going to do with that in this movie. I, is that the female lead? No, no, it's, it's, there's a Boston police detective named Flynn who then gets a spinoff series of books. I'm not curious who's playing Flynn. Well, the other male actors in this movie who could play a Flynn are Kyle MacLachlan and John Slattery. Be funny to have John Slattery in a double act. I don't know. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, don't really know. Marsha Gay Harden and Roy Wood Jr. also on board. Hmm. Anyway, look, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, yes. If I went into a lab and was like, let me crack the Chevy Chase code mm-hmm. and create a modern movie star, I would like throw my hands up in frustration after with what, what I got. I'd be like, this isn't a movie star. Like, he's a movie star because he hits at the right moment. Yes. It's not like Chevy Chase is like a thing that Hollywood endlessly repeats. No, and it is, I mean, we. I feel like we talked about, to a certain degree, he's like a, a, the comedic mirror of Michael Douglas, right? Where you're like, why did this guy become jerk. such a big movie star? Obviously, right. I love Michael Douglas. He's Better a great actor. actor. Right, right. But there's More a tw- malleable than uh, yes. Chevy Chase. <laughs> but there was a 20-year run there where his stock and trade is just, what an absolute piece of How shit, this guy. for this guy? Like, <laughs> right. what's this going on? This guy fucking sucks. And it doesn't matter if he's in a comedy, if he's in a thriller, if he's in a drama. It's like, this guy should be fucking murdered, and somehow you're still rooting for him, scene after scene. What do you want? And they I also, feel- they also both are just like they do cocaine, right? Right. They're <laughs> both know? just coked like, out of their fucking yeah. mind. Like it, it might be uh, these guys, their careers followed the arc of cocaine in American culture so cleanly, <laughs> except, <laughs> except like it's not like cocaine disappears. Imagine but you know what I'm saying? Chevy Chase playing Liberace. No. Right, you know, Michael Douglas actually did find his. He's way got out. more yeah. bottom. He's, he's got more yeah. cast. Right, yeah, right. Chevy, Chevy doesn't do characters. I mean, he like you look at what he did as Gerald Ford on right. SNL versus any other SNL president. Yes, he's not doing anything. It he's is just there. It is wild. It is wild for people who we, do not know what we're talking we've about. We've talked about how like season one of SNL, you throw it on, you're like, I can't wait to be electrified by yeah. the show that had people like fucking in the streets <laughs> right. and then you're kind of like this sketch is 12 minutes long Dude, yeah his take on gerald ford is nothing the, like? look the hit the hit to failure ratio on first season snl is pretty much exactly the same as it is today except <laughs> when it's good it's really electrifying it yeah but it's yeah. still only good 15 to 20 yeah. percent of any episode and as ford he's he's not like wearing a wig no makeup not doing a voice no. nothing no it's just this is a guy who's a klutz that, right, is, that was and it's chevy gerald- chase in a suit i yeah. don't know come on he falls down. It's good. But no, 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 it's, it's really <laughs> funny. It's just, yeah. but it, it, it sort of speaks to this idea I'm talking about where Chevy is above it all. Yes. He's not going to wear a wig. He's right. not going to try to resemble Ford in any way. He's going to do this slapstick that he's brilliant at. Right. But like, that's all. And, but he's going to be doing it as Chevy Chase because that's all he is in all of these movies. It is incredible that 
I, I just always go, it can't be true that he only did one season. Like, but it, but it's just wild how huge his cultural impact was on SNL considering he did one fucking year and mm-hmm. then was yep. already so huge that like, A, I think they thought this show was big because of Chevy Chase. Who knows if it can sustain itself without him? Bill Murray basically apologizing for not being Chevy Chase. Right. You know, yep. And as much as Gilda episodes. and Belushi and Aykroyd were, were popping, whatever, they were like, but it's the Chevy Chase show, right? Yep. I think largely because he was the guy hosting Update. He's doing the president cold opens, but he's doing them as himself. And like, he's, he's the tall, handsome guy. Right. You know? Which, the wilder thing is, they hired him as a writer, and he had to, like, fight to be on camera. Yeah, he was, like, literally doing pratfalls in the street to right. convince them to put him on camera. Right, and, like, he was the guy, I believe, reading off camera with everyone during the auditions, bringing people in, recommending people to Lauren, and he was like, Mom, why don't you fucking yep. hire me to do the thing? Um, and then he leaves and uh, to go be a movie star, and he becomes a movie star immediately. Like, there's so many stories in the 70s of, and the 80s through the 90s of someone's a hit on a fucking sitcom and they leave prematurely to go do movies and it, it fucks them over. Or they have a couple hits and then the career is dead. And he just leaves and automatically works and everyone loves him. Yep. And yeah, works for about 10, 15 years, 15 right? years. It works Pretty until much. like 1990, essentially. Yep. Yeah. Foul, wait, okay, so he leaves in 76. Foul Play doesn't come out until 78, though. I'd forgotten this. Is that the first one? That's, the, I mean, he he was in something called Tunnel Vision, okay. playing Chevy Chase, so I'm guessing it's a sketch movie or something. Some yeah, kind. Yes. But basically the first movie that is released after he leaves SNL is Foul Play, which yeah. was huge. Like, right. my parents took me to see that right. in the theater, and I was like a zygote back then. And it sets up the, oh, my God, look, now he's got chemistry with another movie star. We yes. can put them together like, again. He's the new Cary Grant. Right, that was the whole thing. They yes. were like, Which yes. is still there in this movie that we're talking about today. Yes. Oh, right, this movie. The movie we're t- <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The I'm movie, sorry, I apologize. No, the movie we're talking about today is Memoirs of an Invisible Man. <laughs> yeah. And the reason we're talking so much Chevy and not much Carpenter is this was a ultimate passion project for Chevy Chase. Yeah. And it's the knife he put in his own back, basically. <laughs> and the everything, like the research found about it, yeah. it's basically like at every turn, the studio is like, we know how to make this a movie that will probably succeed. Yeah. He's like, no. Yeah. Not only will I not allow it, fire the people involved yes. and you must pick me, Chevy yep. Chase. Did, 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 did you guys? Like, okay. Did Go you guys ahead. dig out the Bill Goldman stuff? So there's obviously our researchers found. I but Alan has brought Alan has brought which lie did I tell? Which I believe is the second of Bill Goldman's yes. um, After memoirs. Adventures in the Screen Trade. I was obsessed with those books when I was a teen. Mm-hmm. My dad bought them for me, and it's funny to think about it now that I'm like reading about him being like, ah, oh, you know, Saul Sinet's such a jerk, or you know, like whatever. I'm right. like, who are these people? But I was just. <laughs> Intrigue, and I remember the memoirs chapter mostly as a chronicle of an actor's ego, right? Like that's how he sure. kind of puts it. And a good case study, and just like, do you want to like get a sense of how big studio movies are actually made? Like all the weird back and forth, and how you end up with a thing that seems yeah. to please nobody when when so much thought and hand wringing has has happened over this one fucking thing. Um, I mean, I guess we should start because the development of this movie is odd. But you get, uh, I'll give you a little. Yeah, please. I'll give you a little. Yeah. It's a novel by Harry Saint. But even going back to, he had one published story in Esquire like 20 years earlier. Um, he had written a short story in Esquire in 1960, in the 60s. And he, yes, he had not written anything else. Period. 
because he wanted to like get a publishing contract because he's like, I'm not writing something if I'm not going to make any money or whatever. And And he like has a successful career totally outside of writing because he refuses to be like a poor struggling writer. And the back of his mind, he's like, someday I'm going to come back to writing and figure out how to be successful at it. Um, in 86, a version of the novel that's not even done gets in Chevy Chase's hands. By, by his design, he goes like, I want to figure out how to write something that everyone will want to buy. So he comes up with this concept where he goes, like, oh, modern prism, visible man, deal with the practical realities right. of it, really focused, detail-oriented. He gets an agent. They sell the book. The advance on the book is like $5,000. But immediately they sell the book on tape rights and the movie rights for like a combined $2 million. Um, it was basically, yes, exactly. And Chase set this whole deal up at William Morris and then left them for CAA. Right. Reading an unfinished Michael version Ovitz of the book. Grabs him. Yeah. He goes, fuck, this is the thing I've been looking for. <laughs> Get CAA, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, sorry, uh, a first agency is William Morris. Gets them to buy it for him and then goes, sayonara, see you later, goes over to CAA. And as I'm sure you, Alan, have read in the book, this is also when Goldman's going to CAA. And Ovitz is like, we can rebuild you. We have the technology. Like, I know you're a pariah right now, but come on. Like, you're William Goldman. You've won two Oscars. Like, how are you not? How are you on this, like, run of flops? And, William and Goldman was on this. He's a famous screenwriter for anyone who knows. But that. also, more than anything, and there was a good quote that, that JJ pulled up about it, but, like, the thing that was really hurting him was that he had spent the better part of a decade tilting at windmills with projects that didn't get made. And he's like, you can recover from a flop or a failure. The thing that that scares them the most is if they're like, is this movie not going to get done if we hire this guy? Alan, what is your takeaway from Goldman's memoir? So, you know, he's CA promises to get him out of movie jail. They said Ivan Reitman. He's coming off of Ghostbusters. It's a whole package. Chevy Chase. And he lists like Chevy Chase is the number five box office star in the world after like Eddie Murphy, Michael J. Fox, Stallone. And I forget who the other one is. Um, so it's, yeah, so it's like, this is yeah. obviously going to be a go picture. It's a special effects, heavy comedy with the guy who made Ghostbusters. This Reitman's is, whole thing was he went into done. the studio and yes. he was like, I can make this into the next Ghostbusters. Yes. This is the first thing I've read that has Ghostbusters potential since Ghostbusters. Cannot miss. Goldman sits down with Chevy. First of all, I was very impressed that Chevy is tall because that's a hang up of Goldman's. It's also a hang up of mine. Like, I think when you're above a certain height, you like gravitate towards, you know, Interesting. similarly tall people. I, uh, shots fired. Yes. Uh, one of my, that's the my, only person under six feet tall in this room. My wife is five foot three. So I'm, I'm also a hypocrite when it hey comes now. to height. Hey. Yes. All right. So the, he meets with Chevy. He finds Chevy charming because Chevy is capable of doing that on occasion. But Chevy says he wants an investigation of the loneliness of invisibility. Right. And Bill Goldman panics runs to CAA and says, this is going to be a train wreck. Get me out of this. This will not work. They keep telling him, no, no, we're CAA. We package. Right. We can do this. Um, right. That's the whole thing where they're like, stop fussing. This is a go picture. And right. he's like, well, I see a lot of creative problems here. And they're like, These is, you're, you're speaking Greek. Right. That's how it works. Budget set. Director. Right. Actor. We'll figure it out. Like, it's fine. Like, it's the sort of like 80s thing. Like, if we can get a deal done everything will work out later right you know um and so what's described in his book i think is just this constant thing of like right when we'll be like write me a funny movie about a guy who turns into an invisible man think of him as like a chevy chase type 
And then Chase will come in and be like, what are all these gags? Yeah. What, I'm like looking up ladies' skirts? Get out of here. I don't want to play Chevy Chase. Can I read this quote directly? <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Goldman said, as, as it was said to him by Ovitz, right, in this meeting, uh, or a phone call, whatever. He says, Phil, you've been away a while now. Things are a little bit different. Ivan is represented by us. Chevy is represented by us. It is what we at CAA specialize in. It is called a package. And there will be no train wreck. Just write the script. It will all sort itself out. I know this is what you just paraphrased, but there's something in the wording the, the, of the, that, of just yes. like, you The child. 80s confidence of it. You don't understand. This isn't yes. how it works anymore. Famous screenwriter. Yeah, you, you got your two Oscars in the Paleolithic age. Disasters don't happen. Yes, of course, on paper, all of this sounds horrible. But what <laughs> will happen is the movie will be successful. Yeah. And Ivan keeps saying to him over and over, let me handle Chevy. I know how to handle Chevy. It's I've dealt thing, with these people before. Reitman is best at. It, it's truly yeah. like Reitman's style. Like An ego manager of he is the without best equal. ego right. manager in Hollywood. Yes. And so that's the thing. And, and this is the Goldman line that I like. He's like, I have no problem investigating the loneliness of invisibility. I just don't want to do it with Chevy Chase. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> perfect. It just, and like, but I will say, Yes, there's something interesting to like, right? What if you were a king of the universe type and then no one could see you? The narcissism yes. being mm. reversed on you. I don't think that's a compelling movie. It might be a compelling story. It's tough to be, make a hit movie about loneliness, you know, and like no one can see me. You like it because you like the, the yeah. absurdity of the pitch. I know. Like, I know. don't know if you can make a hit movie out of that. I do think you could make a movie that I would find uh, compelling. But, uh, yeah, God, I mean, some of these, these uh, chase quotes here. Um, well, I mean, the, the, well, we'll, we, there's so many chase quotes, but we <laughs> right. do have to note, Goldman eventually fucks off and says... No, 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 Reitman gets fired right, first. Which right. is... Reitman eventually is so, like... And it's Reitman so has managed Bill Murray four times at this point, who is, like, maybe the second most difficult guy in comedy. And, and he goes to Warner Brothers and is like, I'm done. Either it's me or it's Chevy and make your choice. And hasn't he just made, like, Twins, Ghostbusters 2, and Robocop. It's like, it's not like those movies Not are, Robocop, Kindergarten Cop. I mean, <laughs> I wish. Th this may have been earlier than that, because I think right, the Goldman's talking about it's still like 86 or so, so maybe, so maybe Circle Legal Eagles. Maybe he leaves and goes and makes Twins, and it's like, yeah, yeah. there you go. Fuck I mean, you. Either you know, way, like, he has made Ghostbusters. He has made Ghostbusters. And he has single-handedly made Bill Murray a movie star. I think my point was going to be like, if he had just made Twins, maybe the studio's like, we can't fire ivan reitman the right. man makes you know shit into gold like sure. you know it's like he's just such a yes whereas maybe at this point they're still like now we have to side with chevy i guess it's still weird though it is it's still fucking they, weird they fire right well, but also chevy has the rights to the material right that is true so you can't like kick him off the picture but he also right i mean that because the thing he got warner brothers to buy it for him which is why CAA was able to package it after he left William Morris, who had him at the time the purchase was made. Like, he had so much sway that he went to Warner Brothers and was like, I think I would like to do this novel that is not even finished. And they Go were like, pay a lot of money absolutely for it. salivating at the idea. Um, when uh, Reitman leaves the project, Goldman leaves pretty yes. soon after. And then does not get paid for it. As a, uh, as a result of the studio being right. vindictive about it. Right. And But he has the great kiss-off line, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm too old and too rich to put up with this shit, which is a powerful thing to say in Hollywood. That's the line when they try to bring him back. 
Oh, yeah, they right. They uh, when Carpenter's they eventually... taken over, or is it the Richard Donner version? I, I think it might be Donner at that point. But right, they're yeah. like, "Come on, punch up the script. It can be like this." And he was just like, "No, yeah. I'm not. I'm not getting on that treadmill again." I mean, the, the Chevy thing is like, you know, he he goes into Warner Brothers, and they're like, "We obviously see big money in this," and he's like, "Okay, cool. Of course, it's a drama. We agree, it's a drama, right?" <laughs> And Warner Brothers is like, no. And he keeps on thinking he's going to win them over. He speaks about it as if it was such an obvious thing and he did not understand their opposition. And he said, they, they said to him, you can make this book as long as it's hilarious. And his response, you know, let's see a comedy with Chevy Chase Invisible. He'd say, read the book and you'll see it's not about that. So they read the book and they said, well, there's a lot of funny parts in it. It's 450 pages. You take 150 of those pages, funny. And my response was, I want to maintain the integrity of the book. I want it to have substance and death. Where there's comedy, I'll have it in there. They just sort of looked at me. And finally, I said, look, fellas, I swear to you, you've known me a long time. Please give me this break. I see that it's funny where I'll see that it's funny where it needs to be funny, but I'm not going to distort it. I want to tell the story that's there. He's talking in this way that people talk about great projects that were sort of wrestled away from them by an evil studio. Right. Yeah. Like he's using the same sort of language, but it's like, I don't know that he, I was consigned with him. Or projects where the person has totally vindicated the thing turns out to be a masterpiece. Or it's one exactly. or Or, or everyone knows like, well, they have a cut and I've seen it. Right. And their cut is good. Right. There's nothing like that with this. No, no. Please, not to go off on a digression when we're an hour into this Please. and have not oh. talked about the plot of the movie at all yet. And there's a lot. Of- yes, okay. <laughs> have either of you seen the movie True Identity with Lenny Henry? No. No. It's early 90s. It's sort of, it's, remember the uh, Eddie Murphy, like, White Like Me short film from SNL? One of the best SNL sketches It's that ever. as a movie. I'm not sure if it was technically based on that short film or not, but Lenny okay. Henry, who was a big deal in British comedy at the yeah. time, comes still, over. Still a, a hugely... He's kind of a mocked figure in Britain as a comedian, but he's How a huge figure yes. in Britain. Huge so, figure. Charles Lane is directing this movie, that. and the idea is Lenny Henry is uh, running from the mob, uh-huh. and to avoid the mob, he disguises himself as a white man. Okay. And apparently it was originally, Andy Breckman wrote it, and it was supposed to be the big broad comedy with a lot of the jokes like the thing in the Eddie Murphy short film, and Lenny Henry and Charles Lane start making it, and they realize right away... Like, we don't find this funny. This is just kind of sad, the idea of him being able to, like, enjoy white privilege. So there's literally one scene early on where he's in the white makeup where, like, he sees a black guy trying to hail a cab and the cab will not stop. So he then hails a cab, stops it, points to the other guy, says, hey, man, you get into that. That is it. The rest right. of the movie, there is none of, like, him enjoying yeah, wow. being white at all. And it's very clear, like... Why did you make this movie <laughs> where you're putting Lenny Henry in whiteface? Right. If you're like you, this is not a premise that really works as sort of a dramatic thriller thing. It's just so absurd on its face. Yeah. This isn't quite that, but like when you're making a movie with Chevy Chase as an invisible person, why are you trying to do it as like this poor man's Hitchcock with the tragedy of invisibility? But I mean, you look at the reviews of the time and everyone's like, this movie totally makes no sense. If it's supposed to be a comedy, why did John Carpenter direct it? And if it's supposed to be a a thriller, then why is Chevy Chase starring in it, right? Like, people cannot get over this fundamental divide. What I find fascinating about it is that, like, that tonal imbalance was forced upon the movie by Chevy Chase, who was adamant. It's going to be this thing. I'm going to be able to make this work. breaking out. People are going to see me in a new light, finally. Like, he just, like, hated his audience at this point. Hated the movies he was in. Hated the fact that they were successful. 
Like he hated the fact that he could sleepwalk through these things. And now and he hates that him. he's not successful. He's he right. he's a hateful man. Probably he's a hateful man. And that <laughs> that 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 center that nucleus of hate is what you could, in theory, were he more malleable, build an interesting dramatic persona around. Right. But what I find fascinating is there are so many scenes in this movie that he overplays. For how much of the movie he is muted and sad and angry yeah. and kind of lacking in energy, right. there are scenes where he goes way too big and is delivering his lines like fucking Caddyshack Shack style. No, and it's I, true. You might listen to the episode before now and just be like, is this movie totally bleak? And it's like, no, it's not. Kind of still a light comedy. There are yeah, jokes there's a bit of business with like the chopsticks. Yes. That's yeah. like classic there's Chevy slapstick. Physical comedy, they're line deliveries that are so jarring and they don't feel like, well, the studio forced him because the story sounds like he fucking was so stubborn that they let him make it his way. It feels like he is still insecure enough that yeah. he cannot let go of the security blanket of doing the Chevy Chase moves. Yeah. As much as he thinks he's putting them into a, a darker, more adult package. Yeah. The, the, yes, the fucking tomfoolery of this movie is absurd. <laughs> yeah. It's I like want my molecules back is like, that's a Clark Griswold read. Yes. That's how Clark Griswold would say that line. That is right. not how the character in this movie would be saying it as upset as he is about it. Right. The character in this movie, who we all know is called Nick, Nick Holloway. Hollowell. Holloway. But it's just that fundamental difference of like when Wes Anderson puts Bill Murray in Rushmore, Bill Murray is very funny, but he never feels like he's in stripes. Right? Yes, he's able right. to be funny in a very yes. different way. And there's obviously some, you know, sort of like dark comedy that he had from this premise. But when he goes for a laugh in this, he goes for a laugh in full European vacation mode, both in terms of pitch and success. Right? He's not a talented enough actor. This is what I keep coming back to. It's like the man wants to be something he isn't. But when I watch him on screen, I'm like, you're just basically doing Chevy Chase yeah. or you're just sort of not doing anything. Like the there's thing, no pathos to him. I think there's one. Ever? There's the one scene where he's been hiding out in Sam Neill's office all day. Sure. And then Sam Neill confronts him and yes. like, he's like, I know you're in there and they talk. And he, he, right. Sam Neill like talks to a, nothing for a minute. And, yes. finally, and finally, he, finally he put, he put, eventually yeah. he gets frustrated. He puts Sam Neill in a chokehold. He's like, I don't sleep much. I see through my eyelids. And for like 15 seconds. Yes. Yeah. I'm like, Wait a minute. This is the movie they wanted to make. Yeah. That's the right. biggest one. There are a couple the moments for me. I don't even yeah. know if I can name the other ones, but there are individual line readings. There are looks he will give for a moment where I go, Fuck, they almost had it there. Yeah. If he could have sustained this for the entire movie, at least it would have a consistent viewpoint. Yes, but I just don't even know what this character is beyond a sort of generic yuppie. Well, I think the idea is, like, here's a problem. I think if this movie is ever going to work, Chevy Chase needs to be full-on, unstoppable Chevy Chase for the first 20 minutes before he turns That's invisible. That's right. Do a Jim Carrey thing. Yeah. Where, right, we get a good chunk of him. Right. Antic. You know, like, you know, like, uh, wild. Right? Peak Doing of his Chevy. powers. Yes. So that there's a sense of loss, and the, the loneliness of the movie comes from this guy no longer has no, his bag of tricks. No, he can't perform for anyone. He doesn't have yeah. the, the looks. He doesn't have the, the speed. Look, here's the thing. Yeah. It has nothing to do with Chevy Chase. I just have to say it before I forget it. There's a character in this movie called Richard. Mm. He's played by a guy called Gregory Paul. Oh, Martin, my God. I want to talk so much about is, Richard. Who is, I believe, the son of George Martin, the Beatles uh, producer. Oh, wow. This is this is uh, this explains a lot, actually. OK, 
This the, is Matt Berry we're talking about. The, the, the longer hair, yes. Who has a voice that sounds like it's being run through a machine. He sounds it's like Matt so, Berry. Yeah, yes. or, it's, or it's being dubbed. Yeah. It's so, right. Or, is that just a guy who talks that way? It has to be. Here's the reason I bring this up. Yeah. Apart from the fact that anytime he's on screen, you're like, is this guy, what <laughs> is going on? Anytime he was on screen, I forgot Chevy Chase existed. Absolutely. Because I was just immediately distracted by something more interesting. <laughs> so compelling. There was no pathos to Chevy Chase. No. Unfortunately, also none to Daryl Hannah, who I guess we'll get into at some point. Sure. Yeah. Not much of a character there either. No. And nope. so when a weird supporting character came on screen, I would just kind of be like, well, who's this guy? Like Jim Norton, that Irish actor, yes. when he shows up and he's Bishop Brennan on Father Ted, like he's right. an actor. Kind of, well, how I'd do be, you know that? Mm. <laughs> I'd be like, what's up with this guy? And then yeah. we'd back to Chevy Chase and I'd be like, oh, right. The ostensible so, hero of, of this movie. The Sam right. Neill scenes have a similar energy. Yes. To and, and Carpenter obviously must have liked because he puts Love him that. in his next movie. He right? was like, that was my only friend on this production. <laughs> we were in the foxhole together. Yeah. Sam Neill seems like a pro, right? A like a guy who does his job. And but like tonally, it even comes into like the climax of the movie yeah. because they've been doing this whole quantum leap thing throughout, which we can talk about where it's like a lot of the time you're just seeing Chevy Chase on screen, even though he's supposed to be invisible. Right. Even because you don't there. make a whole movie where you can't see your leading man. Right. All right. So they're Chevy and Sam Neill. They're on the construction site. I appreciate you calling that a quantum leap thing. <laughs> it is. That's a good it way. Is a quantum it's, leap no, thing. it's a good way to put. I just think there are other movies that Hot use that device, and it's almost a really good <laughs> representation of a person's worldview to see which one they pick. No, but Hot Chick, you're like you're seeing them as other people see them. Quantum leap, right? It's sort of switching. It's more though, heaven, right? heaven can wait. Heaven can wait. Of yes, course, yes, right. heaven can wait. Yeah, yes, right. that's yeah, a good yeah. one. Okay, I'm trying to think yeah. about it. anyway. Go on. Okay, so. They're, they're on the construction site. Sam Neill's decided, like, I'm not going to be able to recruit this guy. I'm just going to kill him. Yeah. Chevy has gotten construction dust all over half of his jacket. So his jacket is visible. He, you see the jacket before you see Chevy, and it looks like Chevy is standing on the edge of the construction site. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about, I, I'm done. I can't live like this anymore. I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. And Sam Neill starts talking to him. And when you cut back, you see Chevy Chase, mm -hmm. and he is holding the jacket. And he's pretending to cry, and it is all bullshit, and it undercuts every it last bit of tension and wild. pathos out of the scene, and it is just being played for yucks. It, it is it bizarre. Is, and then, of course, he, he's using that to commit murder. Right. Yes. <laughs> and then the murder is like, weird. I mean, him tossing Samuel right. off the, is weirdly sort of underplayed as well. Where he's like, take that! Yeah, Ole, you son, son of a bitch or yes, something. That's once it. again, that's it, it. That, that all feels like he just can't not go to his old bag of tricks. Because it's all he's fucking got. It's all he's got fucking got. He doesn't have depth. <laughs> but, but, but is that a Chevy choice or is that a Carpenter that choice? That feels like a Chevy choice to me. Because I feel like at this point, everyone is fucking like in for a penny, in for a pound on what Chevy thinks he's going to be able to pull off on this movie. And Carpenter talked extensively about like, I just lost control of that fucking thing. I couldn't get my voice through. I mean, we should I back up a little, recenter this around Carpenter a little bit. But he has this four movie deal with the live pictures. He does. Right. Coming off of Big Trouble in Little China, which is now his new biggest bounce. Right. So he goes, right. He, and he's made two alive pictures, Prince of Darkness and They Live, both for low budgets. That both. deal, as we've talked about, is you can make whatever you want. We will green light it with no notes and full creative control off of a one sentence pitch. But your budget is three million dollars. It's fixed. Um, and But he's in a fight with them mm -hmm. at this moment. He wanted a little more money. And they were like, well, then we want a little more control. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of one of those things that doesn't get resolved. Um, he has lots of things he thinks about. He doesn't Exorcist make a movie for four years. Which is a long time for him. Not he, for some He people. pretty much makes a movie 
every year. I believe since we've started this miniseries, there have been two two-year gaps, and that is it. Uh, yeah, pretty exactly, exactly. So he pretty much makes a movie every single he year. He circles a sci-fi adventure movie called Pincushion, starring Cher, which uh, sounds cool because Wants he says it, it would have been a real cool picture. Someone should do it. Uh, he circles Exorcist 3 and then he said realized William Peter Blatty wanted to make it. Right. Like he was like, you know what? This is your movie. Yeah. Uh, he tries to remake Creature from the Black Lagoon. That one seems which to get sounds pretty, far. pretty cool. Sounds pretty fucking cool. He's all in on doing like a 3D movie. Yeah. They're working on the design of the creature, right? You know, doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. He's attached to both Fatal Attraction and Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, I don't even have to read his quote for this. Yeah. Uh, Fatal Attraction. I have no idea. He, they wanted Adrian Lyne. I have no idea why. I guess because he'd done another hit for them. Uh, I didn't like them. Fatal Attraction was just plain misty for me. I didn't want to do that. And Top Gun. Come on. They fight the Russians in the third act. Come on now. There'd be World War Three. Stop that. Yeah. Come on. That's, yeah. his, that's his quote. He's not wrong. <laughs> um, but I just feel like every other movie we've covered on this show. We're setting up like, here are the things he almost made before he made this movie. And you're like, wow, he went through a lot of failed projects and somehow still got another movie out 12 months later. And this is the one time where you're like, he's just stuck in development hell for four years, jumping from thing to thing. There are his own things he wants to make. There are things he attaches himself onto because he wants to work with a a certain star. There are things that studios court him for that become big hits later. But nothing's getting off the ground. And... Chase is the one who pushes him through the studio. The studio doesn't want him for this because they think he'll make a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Carpenter, I mean, his line, I got into this business because I wanted to direct westerns. I can do any type of movie, so don't give me your shit. Apparently, he said (laughs) that at a boardroom meeting. The other part of that quote is (laughs) that... The first part of the quote is long, but it's him pretending... They were like, don't... You can't do any of that bloody Carpenter stuff. And he's like, Oh, shoot, because my plan was to have the invisible man stab a person in the gut, Take his wrap their out. entrails around him, his own invisible body. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's ornery. Yeah. He comes off ornery in these. So weird match for Chase, in my opinion. Another ornery guy. <laughs> Can I tell you my, my pet theory about why he did this? You can, but I just want to say one other oh, thing. Sure. It's like two ornery things. And then the third ornery thing you hear is because of the visual effects. This movie was a nightmare. A nightmare. To make. A nightmare. You body suits and you have to bring in the, sh- the VistaVision camera to shoot the visual effects. You have to essentially slow. shoot the whole movie twice because you have to get all this reference footage. So everyone's and, miserable. Yeah. Miserable. But wait, miserable. What's, what's your theory? Um, you know, there, there is this element of Carpenter where I feel like he constantly has a, a, a grass is greener view of things. On top of also constantly feeling like, well, but I was younger then. If I tried this again, now I could handle it. Right? Mm-hmm. So he's in this zone where it's like, I'll make a big movie for a studio. That was a fucking nightmare. I want to go back to making my smaller things, right? I want complete control. Eh, I'm tired of complete control. I want a big budget. I know how to politic. I know how to deal with the studio again, right? So there's that oscillation where for some reason he does this movie just because he was ready to try the other thing after having done two movies on his own terms, after having done two movies on their terms, after having done, like, it's just the back and forth, Right. Um, But the other part of it is this running theme we've seen in all of these development stories is he keeps on wanting to work with big ass stars. And you go like, yeah, dude, do you not realize you're going to have a really hard time battling for control with someone who is protective of their own persona rather than someone like Kurt Russell, who is collaborative and is going to give you what the movie needs? And he's like, ah, but what if Clint Eastwood did it? And it's like, dude, it's not going to fucking work if you work with Clint. I think there was this part of him that finally wanted to work with like an A-list star and he made the mistake of picking 
the A-list star at the absolute last moment of his A-list status, trying to do the exact opposite out of what everyone wanted out of him. But we keep on hearing the, the things of like, I want to try different genres. I want to see if I can prove that I can do it within the studio system. But also, how do I make sense of a movie star's persona? How do I use that weight and that power that comes with that? And right. it was the wrong choice. Right, because Chase is like, well, I don't want to do that. Right. right. I don't want to use my persona. I'll also say, I, look, I have uh, uh, no firsthand experience as to what this feels like. But it sounds like it's pretty difficult when you have a lead actor playing the title character in a project that, because of its very concept, involves a tremendous amount of special effects and the person doesn't want to do it. The person does not want to wear the thing. He doesn't know. He would, like, not do it. He would be like, I'm done today. Right. I have no personal experience, but I would imagine that's a thing that pushes everyone to the brink of insanity on a daily basis when you have an entire day built around the guy supposed to do this thing all day, and then the guy decides he's tired two hours in. That's just a thing that I, I could imagine maybe puts a tremendous amount of strain on everyone else. Sure. And makes it very hard to put together coherent things because the footage you have is very misshapen. Mm-hmm. 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 That seems like a challenge to me. It mm-hmm. seems like a challenge. And I'm so happy I have never had to experience that. <laughs> <laughs> now, in Memoirs of Invisible Man, you could think they would be like, you know what? Chase doesn't want to do it today. Fine. Put a telephone on a string. We're doing a phone call. Get a double. (laughs) Have you dub it in post. It is bizarre how much they were sort of held captive by like, if he, they put him through all the makeup and then 15 minutes and he's like, eh, I don't like it and walks off set and Carpenter's like, the whole day is ruined now. He should just be like, yeah, well, he's not in this scene. Guess what? Because he's invisible. Right. Don't call him to set. Ugh. I mean, he's not invisible that much in the movie. Again, this sort of gets back to the whole Quantum Leap thing. No. Most of the time, you are watching Chevy Chase. And when he's not invisible, it's just Chevy Chase in a fucking in suit. A suit. And yes. it should not Is be that much of a hassle for him to do it. The clothes that he had on him are invisible, but no other clothes? David, Correct. Makes no but then there are times he wears other things. I, I was not no, quite no, no, sure the, how the, to the, It's an invisible suit. I've thought right. about this a lot. Because it, I, it has been invisibilized. Yes, it has been invisibilized. So he has yeah. to keep track of these clothes for the rest of his life. Because okay. anytime he wants to go out into the world right. and be invisible and not be naked, this is his only option. Okay. I'll say that. I appreciated, not to spoil the end of this movie, but yeah. that he is invisible at the end of this movie. He yeah. ain't going back. I like that too. Yes. That is something that would be a good ending to a good movie. Yep. He's got to figure out his new life as an invisible man. Yep. Let's just say like quickly, the plot of this movie is he's a fucking Chevy Chase guy, except not He's like a, a stock guy. Right. He's yep. a yeah. guy who flirts with women and hates his job and fucking sleep. And doesn't try and his secretary is super impressed with him. Despite right. him being like a, right, he's a like I'm up. going to the club, and she's like, "What?" You right. know, but yes, right. that's he, his thing. He meets Daryl Hannah. He love at first sight. Uh, he gets as vulnerable as he is capable of getting with anybody. Drinks too much. I love the weird note that it's like what fucked him over was that after he met her, he went back to the bar and had more drinks. That they like met, made out, connected. She was like, they ah, set a date. Right, it's yeah. too soon. I'm not going to let you go home with me. And then he just goes back to the bar and really ties one on as a victory lap. <laughs> yep. By well, himself. He might be an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. But then as he explains the narration, that's what fucks him over because the next day when he's supposed to go and report on this fucking scientific presentation, he's so hungover that he, Bored. as one does, walks out of the presentation and tries to find a place where he can take a nap. Yes. And this, this electronics physics lab, whatever it is, 
they've got like a sauna on site that right. he can go lie down. In. Right. There's, of course, a room with a thousand computers where the door is wide open. He asks, where's the bathroom? The guy casually, but uh, with all the clumsiness of a Chevy Chase protagonist, <laughs> knocks over his coffee, electrocutes a computer. Chevy Chase <laughs> opens the wrong door, some executive suite where there is a private sauna. He locks the door. He decides to take a nap. And at that point, whatever happened with the coffee on the computer causes the entire building to be demolarized. The entire they, building explodes. They evacuate everyone immediately. Everyone else. No one and else Chevy is, is such a building. sound sleeper because he's so hungover and that he sauna, does not hear. Soundproof sauna, baby. Oh, there. See, there we go. One of those classic soundproof saunas. Well, of the, of the 80s, yes. hate hearing things yeah. in the sauna. Yeah. I hate that. In my office, my personal <laughs> sauna. Um. Yeah, I don't know if there's a cleaner way for him to fall in front of the invisible ray or whatever, but yeah, it's a little it's a little convoluted. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like the book is a different thing. I was reading through this. Um, it's also the book, the, the Daryl Hannah character is kind of only at the beginning of the film, and Carpenter was the one who was like, he has to have some human connection. There has to be a reason why he wants to keep going. So it's not just a man on the run. In the thing. book, a bunch of Marxist protesters cut off power to the building, and that's what causes the accident. Right. Not a cup of coffee. In, in, in the book, uh, the, she is uh, his love interest at the beginning of the book. It sets it up. She's a journalist. She gets him to the lab. And then when he turns invisible, she marries someone else instead. <sighs> yes. Um, can we talk about the rules of the invisibility? Please. I hate that he can't see himself. It's so annoying. Well, it makes he it see? not He's invisible. Fun. He's invisible. No, bank. I know, but it's like the whole fun of being invisible is that you could sneak into a bank and like go into the vault, but he like can't see his hands. He can't like feed himself. Well, that, Do you know what I'm saying? That's but the, that's it's the loneliness of invisibility. That's well, invisible. Not that. paying attention I want to see shit go down. <laughs> the, the whole pitch you on the book ben, was that like you have the invisible man, right? That's right. this huge fucking hit. And Famous then Universal makes like film. the invisible woman and the invisible agent and the invisible man returns. Dog. Like that that idea is explored. <laughs> Fuck. Like the, the the sort of fun of what the invisible man could do, right, is all covered. And the pitch of this book that got Hollywood salivating is like. It would be a real pain in the ass being invisible. Like, that was the whole thing that everyone was attached to. And I think for Warner Brothers, they go, that pain in the ass could lead to a lot of hijinks. Right. Which makes sense. And then for Chevy, he's like, that could lead to someone living a miserable existence. Pathos. Right. And they both have, like, the incorrect reading of the thing and commit too hard to it. But they're, they both believe that the success of this movie is caught up in the minutiae of how difficult it is. I, I went back and I reread some reviews of the movie that were published at the time, and several of them go to town on the chopstick sequence. Like, thank God, like, there's this great Chevy Chase slapstick set piece. In the movie, it's like 10 seconds. Yes, yeah. so, But they're it's just barely like anything. anything they can grab onto. Yes. Because the other thing in those reviews that I, like, briefly noticed, and it's so rude, it's like every time there's a Carpenter movie, they're all like, here comes Mr. Special Effects again. We get it. You've got a computer, but where's the humanity? And it's like, the guy's made great movie. Like, yeah. leave him, but every time they're right. just like, I could barely like stay in my seat because there were so many special effects. Right. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. And it's also like, this guy's fighting to put humanity into this movie, I think. Yes, I guess so. I mean, He's finding to put more of a normal guy narrative right. in. And Chase is like, ah, 
What if no one could see me at all? Maybe that's what I crave. I think there's also, there is a real intelligence and wit to the way the special effects are employed in this movie. Not only are they incredibly well executed, this is like maybe that perfect sweet spot of digital effects just starting to come into the picture, being able to clean up more traditional techniques uh, where you just have this perfect kind of tactility to these things you cannot believe they could execute. They look, so good. They look it, so they good. When, when she puts the makeup on his face and yeah. it's just his face floating in that, midair. And then they cut to the reverse and you see like the hollow the inside. It. It's yeah. insane. It is insane. They barely would need updating. You no, know what I mean? No, like they like, look pretty much pretty how I would perfect. imagine now. I think those are later. also the parts of the movie that work best. It is weird that the reviews are like, Ugh, enough of the effects. Give me more chopstick hijinks. I'd be like, <laughs> this movie should just be Invisible Man Effect. Also, yep. this movie seems to work better when Chevy Chase is not on screen, <laughs> when he is not even like in front of camera. Yes. And you just have some fucking gag happening. Because it's more interesting than yeah. a sad fucking guy who's whatever. I don't know. There's not also, even interested in being charming. There's also look, Hollow Man, a, a, a half successful movie at best. Yes. Right. Uh, Invisible Man, the, the recent the uh, remake, which yeah. I think is a, a pretty terrific film mm-hmm. uh in my eyes both of those movies get away with being like and once the guy turns invisible it can't really be about him anymore right where, we need to expand out right, right, right i think right. you can do it a little easier in a book where it's all the guy's kind of internal monologue where it's structured as his memoirs when they get into narration on this movie it ends up just feeling like a like dead men don't wear plaid like it's like a parody the narration it's so, so stiff it's so yeah. stiff. Oh, so, yeah. And, like, just exhausted sounding. He sounds so fucking tired. <laughs> and yeah. also, like, sometimes it's, like, this purple prose, which is a little more interesting. Like, the shit I was, like, more memoir Right. Other times he's, like, I realized I had to go out. But before I did, I'd have to put on my pants. But it's hard to put on pants when you can't see your yeah, pants. Yeah, I'm imagining someone actually watching this and being like, right, we get it, guy. You he's describing exactly what's on. happening on screen. Like, <laughs> And then I realized, wait a second, and he's doing the wait a second face. And you're like, to either trust us enough or trust his performance enough to carry us through it. Anyway, when he becomes demolecularized, then the movie becomes something of a man-on-the-run thriller. This was part of Carpenter getting the job was pitching them like, it's like Starman. I just did this. It worked. The right. government wants him, and he's got this love, and that's the thing carrying him through. Do the E.T. thing. They, they, they can't get their hands right. on me because they'll dissect me or whatever. Sam Neill gets sent in to investigate this bizarre building. That's also the best fucking imagery in the whole movie. Yeah, the Weird. Swiss cheese building. The oh. Swiss, that's very cool. That, that is, is yeah. cool. And eerie-ish. I, I, do, I remembered that as, from when I saw it back in the 90s as being like a longer set piece than it is. Like, even, I really would yeah. have loved to see like him wandering around this building do for a while. Do more in the building. It feels Possibly, like yeah, something yeah. out of like a Michelle Gondry video or something. Yeah. It's like very bizarre kind of. It's like, like M.C. Escher kind yes. of like mm-hmm. from the inside yeah. perspective it when they're doing rules. that shot. That sequence does go on fairly long and is compelling and he's just playing panic there. But there's sort of a perspective shift where you're mostly seeing it from Sam Neill's eyes. And then when it cuts yeah. back to Chevy, it's first person POV sort of worry. Yeah. Uh, which sort of maybe works better for how to play his internal life at this point. But the idea is that uh, Sam Neill very quickly realizes there's a guy in there. This guy could be the greatest intelligent asset in the well, modern world. Especially because his whole take is like, look at this guy. No family. 
no life really it's like all his job like he basically can disappear he's anonymous it's almost like he was already an invisible man i'll use him i'll train him to right be a super soldier but basically what's weird is that crystallizes for me the best version of what this movie is at least if you're doing it with chevy chase right which is it's chevy chase trying to create a slightly deeper comedy in that it's about a superficial chevy chase protagonist who once he no longer has his looks to rely on, right. everyone once, realizes, like, you're nothing. You have no life. You skate through shit. You have no attachments. There's no depth to anything you've ever done. Right. You're meaningless now. It's why the Carpenter road trip take might be the wrong one. Because actually, maybe we should stay put with him. I think so. Maybe. I don't know. Alan, what do you think? Anything but what they actually do would have been more interesting. It's just it's such a weird, misshapen collection of ideas and then he's like hanging around at Michael McKean's like beach house well, for a while. That's where the movie is so deadly. Yes. Apart from the crazy guy with the the, the deep British uh, voice. Yes. Accent, right. In which case I, I'm like give me more of this guy. What's going on with him? Yeah. But I mean no. I mean or why do you like the beach house? Griff? You're giving me a mischievous Griffin look. It's Michael McKean you got a uh, Patty Heaton right? Is yes. Is young, Patty young, Heaton? young Patty Heaton and Michael McKean are the couple. Neither of them are given anything to do. Um, no. Well, they have a very unsatisfying sex scene on the beach. That's, that's, that's uh, true. That he that's sees. maybe his only good moment. <laughs> I mean, and I love Michael McKean. He's not doing anything wrong in this movie. No, he just. I, I, I do not think I've ever seen anyone, any project, fail to milk Michael Do McKean in any yes. way. Because the guy's so versatile, can turn anything into something watchable. Yep. And this movie just strands him. Yeah, and then you've got Daryl Hannah, who we're picking back up, and uh, George Martin's right. son, who's trying to hit on her. Right, right? bloody purchase. Exists. I'm an author. It's like, okay, well, are we back in Fletchy kind of territory, where Chevy Chase is like, pulling his pants down right. when he says something mean and like, I don't right Like he's sort of trying to like get one over on the guy who wants his girl. And yeah. He's eavesdropping and spying and, you know, he's like scaring the delivery boy. It's yeah. But it's like, back I'm to like, comedy. wait, aren't we, is the FBI, the CIA or whatever after you or whatever? Right. Like, I mean, that, the thriller aspect of it is so incompatible with everything else this movie <laughs> is doing. And Sam Neill plays it totally straight and is good and is actually pretty scary. But then even, no disrespect to him, but Tobolowski, it feels like, is hired to be the number two in the comedy version of this yes, movie. Yes, dude. And Sam Neill is in the serious When Tobolowski swings in, yeah. and I saw him in the credit, he's like fourth or fifth build. Yeah, big, yep. big enough I was so baffled. I was yeah. like, why, why is he showing up all of a right. sudden? And he's doing his thing. He's doing yep. his thing. Hey, do you know him? I feel like yeah, he's, yeah, you yeah, know, I, I, he's I, around. I know yeah, yeah. Like, does he have any stories about this? He's always he telling mu- stories. He probably has 87 stories about Hold this. Hold on. I think I think I you guys keep going. I, I okay. think I may have one. Hold on. Because like he and he is he in another carpenter? Am I crazy? Had he worked with him before? Maybe let me I don't think we've seen him in one <sighs> yet. Right? No, no. You know what? I just rewatched it, Thelma and Louise, and he's in that. And it, look. It's his brand, but obviously anytime he pops up, you're like, oh, there he is. Like, I, yeah, think, I think both of them are doing what they do and what they were hired to do well. But they are representing the two contradictory ideas right. of what this movie could be, often in the same scene with the yeah. two of them together. Right. But also, this is, this is pre-Groundhog Day. So while he sure. definitely did comedy stuff before this, he was more of like a heavy. You know, he'd been yes. in like yeah, Mississippi burning, kind of, things like kind that. Kind of a big guy. I, but I, yeah. I still think there's that weird... I mean, there's, the, there's obviously the folksiness to him. Yes. You know? 
the, the like, voice, the whoa, yeah, right, the sort of, yeah. I feel like even when he's playing someone scary, part of it is that like this guy is going to be made to look a fool at some point in some way, even if it's a menacing fool. Yes, you know, it's just he. Come, am I wrong that he comes in really late? Or maybe I just sort of like. He comes in when the building disappears, doesn't he? Yeah, he he shows up. Sam Neill is testifying before Congress or something. Right, right. Right. Because he's the one. Sam Neill sort of says, like, look, this is good for both of our careers. If you kick this up to the superiors, you're not on this case anymore. Yep. Whereas you can get the credit for doing this, and I can get the credit for developing the invisible agent. He's there for exposition and to sort of establish Sam Neill's bona fides because Sam Neill can now threaten Tobolowski. Right. And Sam Neill, I guess, is kind of doing James Mason a little bit because this is very like North by Northwest with the score sure, and right. the scene on the train. The decent score by we talk uh, about the score? Shirley Walker. Yeah, This is, by most accounts, and perhaps someone correct here, but by most accounts, it is accepted that this was the first, first solo composer, score right. by a female composer in a major studio film, period. What? Yeah, uh, in 1992. What? It's the one of at least, you know, like to, to hedge, it's like one of the earliest instances. 1992. 19- I was alive. 92. <laughs> like the question is whether it is the first or it's like the third. Right. But and I think she still might be the have the most credits. Correct. As a, still as to a, this day. As a female. Still composer. to this day. And she died 15 years ago and she, she still has the most credits. No one's been able to catch up with her. It is such a weird thing where you're like. Yes, Hollywood's a boys' club. Yes, of course, there's only so sure. many directors. Of course, the turnover is going to be so much slower and all that. But like, yeah, like, why is composing like it is this? Weird. Well, you they're know, also so weird. There, there are positions and high level positions like editor that where like those roles women have been, have held been in by high level forever. Right. But it, it does feel like that there was this divide of like women get to do things that are organizational. Yeah, men get to do things that are creative. Creative, right? Or or roles of leadership. no female cinematographers or composers. Right, yeah. women Lots can of be script supervisors. And editors. They yeah, can yeah, be yeah. right casting. They can be editors. But uh, Julie Walker had done like she's was it Apocalypse Now? She's on one of the early Coppola movies. Uh, I can look at it. But up. she does a lot of like additional material. She does a lot of like yeah. She she did credited as doing synthesizer in Apocalypse Now. Right, and yeah. then her big thing is she works with Elfman on the Batman scores. Which leads to the same year as this, her being the composer on Batman the Animated Series. Uh, it's the next year she worked. Oh, yeah. No, well, the Animated Series, right. And then she worked on Mask of the Phantasm right. and Batman Beyond. She right. won an Emmy for that. But this score is very uh, uh, Batman to me. It, it, it sounds very similar to the Elfman Batman. And then her score on Batman the Animated Series is sort of running further with a lot of the initial ideas mm-hmm. of the notes of the tones of the Elfman thing. The score, I think, is really fucking good for this, actually. And then uh, Batman the Animated Series is this, like, rare animated series where you have, like, a full orchestral score. score of course. With, yep. with original material for every single episode. This is what I was going to say is interesting, though, that J.J. pulled up. This is one of only three times that Carpenter seeds composing duties to someone else. Entirely, at least. Right. Right. Christine and The Thing. And and this right. are the three, right? This is the third time. This is the time that the person is the least established that he's actually giving someone their first breakthrough solo credit, right? Uh, you have to imagine that it's because of his respect for her, especially because, like, it's such a big concession deal that he's like, well, Morricone wants to do it. I'll let Morricone do the score for the thing, right? Yep. 
uh, that he was a man who respected his his female collaborators and gave people opportunities and all that sort of stuff. Do you know how Shirley Walker got this job? Um, I don't know. Chevy I, Chase. Really? That's yeah, I think it was maybe Spies Like Us. It was one of the Chevy Chase movies from the 80s. Uh, Chevy goes into the scoring session and sees that she's conducting. They hired someone else to do the score for this movie and they quit and Chevy Jack Chase... Nietzsche. Yeah, and Chevy Chase was like, I don't know, why you hire that woman who did Fletch the conducting? Fletch Lives. Fletch Lives. She conducted Fletch Lives and he was like, hire that woman who did the conducting. Good for Chevy. Yep. But weird, he doesn't feel like anyone who would be but this is the paying attention about to the anybody. Phone call. Yeah, we're like, you know, he's got it in him. George Steinbrenner. Some people tell stories about him being the most wonderful man they've right. ever met, and then right. the rest of the time he's a monster. Right. It's, it, it just it's odd funny. that he broke a glass ceiling single handedly and treated <laughs> yeah. it like I don't know. Like I saw her once. She seemed like she knew what she was doing. But here's what I wonder: because like the music of Carpenter is so. In, anemic to the the things he makes do you look at the fact that like he is willing to see this and not fight to say i want to do it sure. myself as another sign that like he is just a hired gun on this like there's uh, really so little of his personality in this movie what's interesting is that with christine and the thing you have composers who it feels like have enough respect for carpenter as a composer and how much the sound of his movies is part of the dna that both of them are doing scores that are kind of half carpentery yeah, sure. Whereas this is Shirley Walker doing what feels like it could fit into any episode of Batman the Animated Series. Right. Like it's, it's an adventure score. It's not a, it's a synth score. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's a big sweeping orchestral sounds. There's no, apart from the visual effects, there's nothing in this movie that you're like, that is, inc- you know, like that is really distinctive. Like I it's th- a movie that's going for a certain yes. tone that we f- are familiar with. Right. Just doesn't really match it in plot or lead actor no he's <laughs> like that's the problem right I think he said like you know he wanted to prove that he could work within the studio system and fight it and that it was just like absolute non-starters all the time that they were questioning everything he did that he was yelling with them about everything but he still thought i can get a good movie out of this and then he gets on set and then the two actors don't want to work and it's like well now i'm just fucked now <laughs> there's like nothing for me to fight for and that, yeah, they would do things like that scene with the, the makeup that we talked about. It's like the most striking visual effect in this movie. You watch it, that scene's really fucking quick, and they have less shots of him than you think you would want, considering how stunning that effect is. Well, and the but- story is, he had to be in this blue jumpsuit, and they had to cake his face in this makeup, and they had to paint his inside of his mouth blue, and then they had to have these blue contact lenses that were the circumference of his entire eyeball. Which does sound awful. And that does not sound pleasant. Tiny yeah. pinholes to see through. It was so physically, like, your body does not want to accept something that they had to, like, inject him with medication to numb <laughs> his eyes so that they could get the things in. And they shot for 15 minutes, and then he was like, I hate this. And he took them out. I mean, I sort of sympathize with him on that one. Yeah, I, I get, still don't work on that. I get it. Right. But, but my one point is, Chevy, you desperately wanted to do this movie. You knew what you were fucking doing. The whole concept is it's going to be this big fucking effects thing. Whether the argument is if it's funny or serious or not, you know the nature of this is going to be you having to do these complicated things. There's some quote in the dossier that's basically him being like, yeah, I didn't realize it was going to be all this visual effects shit. And it's like, I get that it's 1992 and that stuff isn't like entirely baked into movie making as it is then now. Yeah. But... Right. No. You're playing the invisible man. You didn't see this coming? His like, whole line was like, I knew it was going to be bad, but not that bad. And it's like, 
that sounds like the worst of it. That sounds like a really difficult day. And he was often apparently left to sort of like holding the bag going like, I don't know how to cut this into anything. We Everything now is unusable because we only got coverage from one side, you know, whatever the fuck it is. But it is bizarre that the production did not at some point start working around him and going like, okay, assume he can't handle this. How do we get doubles in here? How do we reorganize sequences? Whatever the fuck you do. Uh, and that he kept on sort of acting like, no, 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 I can handle it. He goes through all the hair and makeup. They put him in the fucking thing. And then after 30 minutes, he's like, eh, I'm done. I'm done for the day. Because there's that really cool sequence when he's in the park in San Francisco. He's trying to talk to the scientists from Magnoscopics. Yeah. And then it turns out that Sam Neill's guys are there. And he's like peeling out of the suit and yes. running. That's what, like, maybe the second best effect after the yeah. face. I think the rain kind of blows my fucking mind. No, the rain is very cool, okay. too. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, like, you could do a bunch of scenes of, like, a double in the suit moving around. It, it, there's ways to do it. And Look, and once again, it's a thing I would have no experience with. But sometimes maybe that happens. <laughs> I don't know what you're implying, Griffin. Sometimes maybe you realize an actor is going to have two hours of energy all day. So you structure your filming around making sure you get all the stuff with them first and that it's clean and that no one else is in it. And then you have a series of doubles in costumes who are filmed from very specific angles. Yep. And you use the voiceover of the audio from the takes where he was on camera or have them stitch it in post. Talk about memoirs. I don't know. <laughs> it's difficult for the other actors in the cast, but that's maybe how you get workable material. There's a part where um, it's just pants you can see are running. Yes. That was cool. The movie needed more pants is what you're yeah. saying. You like that? <laughs> I think that's a fun gag. It Whoa, was. the pants are running? Look, but he's in some sort of uncomfortable Well, wasn't that uh, the Pixar movie? Uh, Onward. Onward, yes. Have you seen that movie, Ben? I have not. A pair of uh, pants, disembodied legs. That might is, be your favorite movie. Oh, favorite, shit, yeah. Uh, yeah, is a, a major plot point in Onward. Yes. They, Made major they, re they, they resurrect their dead father, but like only up to the waist. They fuck up the So it's spell. just pants and like, you know, shoes. Dock siders. Right. Oh, oh, shit. I gotta watch this. Yeah, so the whole yeah. movie is just Good like movie. slacks and shoes. Underrated. underrated movie and they Good have to movie. communicate with their father through like stumps Be better than uh memoirs of an invisible man in yeah <laughs> you said that like that was about to be a real like, uh, um are we gonna talk about daryl hannah i mean it's a shitty role it's nothing i mean her She's problem not is bad no jj pulled up all these quotes of just how fucking mean the press was to her at the time like like here's this fucking they trust fund kid she was like born rich and then her mom remarried even richer yeah and she's like hollywood royalty through and, being like you know daughter-in-law through marriage of haskell wexler like everyone held that against the, her right that the wexler fortune but like it's also isn't it partly like they were just mad that like she was a blonde who played a bimbo one time and they just were sort of like well that must be her whole thing she played these ethereal i mean right it's like splash and blade runner right, that kind are getting of, hit on her right right yeah. and splash is obviously such a big deal but then everyone's just like we'll do that again be magical lady and she wants to play people with interiority steel magnolias was like a thing she fought for there are other things that jj pulled up that she really wanted to do like she wanted to make a movie about nicaragua where she played like a photojournalist. She wanted to do a show on Broadway. Yeah, she wanted to play the sort of, yeah, the sort of like heroic female journalist in Nicaragua that was, you know, like she wanted to do like what sounds like a very Oscar-y kind of biopic there. Right. She wanted to do theater. She, you know. And she took this with no delusions what do you think about of what Hannah? it was. 
Um, she had a run there in the 80s. Really. Especially. She had a run. She's, she's obviously really striking physically. She's yes. got a great yeah. camera presence. Uh, I don't think for the most part, like, she, when she's not, when she's actually being given characters to play, yeah. it's not necessarily in a great movie. Like, Legal Eagles, I'm not sure what anybody could have done. You yeah. Know. Right. With that role, for Hollywood's instance. not helping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Same with Wall Street. That's like right. a terrible yes. role. But like, she's funny in Splash. It's not just that yeah. she, she you know, is beautiful. Talk. Yes. Yeah. yeah. She's good in Roxanne, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, she's and good she, in that. she has like four or five genuinely kind of big performances yeah. in big movies. Steel Magnolias, I guess, is kind of the end of her mm-hmm. in being in serious. I movies. think that was the beginning of her wanting to be like, I want to be a character actress. I'm going to take the part you don't expect me to take. I'm not going to take the Julia the, Roberts, Julia young Roberts ingenue part. part. Right. I'm going well, to put right, on glasses. Right after, after, uh, after Steel Magnolias, she does Crazy People, and then she does it play in the fields of the Lord. Okay. Then she does this, and the thing she does immediately afterwards is the HBO version of Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. Oh, yeah. yeah which yeah, Yes. Yeah. And like, the 90s are rough because it's like, okay, grumpy and grumpier old man. Sure. Yeah. A lot of kids' movies, like Little Rascals, My Favorite Martian, yes. the straight-to-video Adams Family movie that recasts she everyone. Plays Morticia. Yeah, yeah, which is, I, I don't think, very good. No, um, it's terrible. I just remember like her being very big as I was growing up because yep. she had been reclaimed. I mean, A, my parents were like, these movies are good. You should watch Splash. I definitely like Splash. And Roxanne. When I was a kid. On yeah, yeah, Roxanne is Roxanne. wonderful. And then right. meanwhile, she's, good in it. she's starring in mediocre Disney winter comedies. Uh, and then, you know, and then you know when she's in Kill Bill, it's like the classic Fuck. Tarantino thing. Right. Oh shit! He dug up like this sort of faded star. Right. This, this is, is how you role. should have all been using her all Absolutely. along. She's so good. In it. Fantastic Electrifying. in yeah. that movie. And then like too many people in Tarantino movies, nobody bothers to like try I mean, to duplicate. There's that. the Weinstein element too. Like she she yeah. says that Weinstein uh, harassed her so hard that one time she had to escape a hotel room out of a balcony, and that after that Ugh. moment she was kind of like she did not get any of the follow up. Kill Bill roles that she clearly should have got. I think it's also just like the industry at large is it does not know what to do with women in their 40s, which at that point she was. I don't think there was a clear pathway. And I have no doubt that Weinstein made it uh, exponentially harder for her. I agree. I am sure, but like, I do also think it's this thing with the Tarantino where when he does these revival, right, he has this very specific idea of how to use this yes. actor. And he kind of puts it on a plate for other people to borrow it. And like that worked with Travolta, but usually it doesn't work. It usually also, no one else like picks up on the Yeah, idea. Robert Forster at least kept working, but, right. but certainly he, no no, ever, never as well as in that. No, like yeah. and it's like he just got this guy. It's same with Pam Greer. Yeah. Like he just got this person for you out of the, you know, the disused bucket or, yeah, you know, like it's and then the so studios are like great job in that one movie. Anyway. Right. Yeah, but know. this is this is just an utterly thankless role. Like this is yes. sort of classic the woman in a guy movie in the eighties or nineties, and she disappears for so long, pun unintended, in a movie where she's supposed to sort of be the emotional thrust of the thing. Is like that relationship she's, is what's, what's keeping him right, keeping him alive almost. Yeah, right? it's like well, the all, all he's got to fight for is. And, but maybe... like, why does she like Nick? What draws no her to idea. Nick? I mean, this is the problem with him being so sad and lonely at the beginning of the movie where it's like he's doing half-ass Chevy Chase flirting, right? Where you're like, if we're going to believe that she still wants to be with him, at least give me fucking like best of times. Or or what's it called? Seems like old times. Seems like old times. Best of times is Kurt Russell and Robert Williams playing football. That's why that's been on my mind recently because of Kurt. 
Yes. Um, but like, yeah. or, or do something where like the invisibility thing works for her. Yes. Like she likes that that's for some, some reason. But I think right. give her that, some degree of like independence. That's probably in some too way. high concept for Chevy. I mean, she talks <laughs> about like her her interviews from the time of this movie are like, I don't know, this movie is what it is. I had no delusions about it. I like Chevy Chase's movies, work with a big star. It's a nothing part. It's light entertainment. It's fine. Like she very much spoke of this, like, I need to do a big movie where I'm above the title while I'm biding my time, still struggling to get these projects off the ground that will reframe me as a legitimate actress. And Chevy is like, this is the movie that will reframe me as a serious actor, but I don't know how to do it. And Carpenter said both of them were nightmares to him. That they were both just like, I don't want to fucking be here. I don't want to do this. Chevy, I think because of the technical realities of this, but also that was always the story about him on Community was like, the biggest problem is he hates the hours. He does not want to have to work the hours of an actor. He wants to just show up and do his thing and go, you got it, good. And then they go, no, we have five other pieces of coverage <laughs> to get. Yeah. You know? Um, and I think she just didn't like being in this movie and having to be the, the innocent ingenue again. Like the sort of ethereal, beautiful woman. Um, and they right. both were apparently assholes both, to him. Right. They're both mad about their place in Hollywood. And yeah. they're taking that on him. And he's kind of just like look, I'm just trying to make a studio movie here, right? Like, I, he doesn't have enough passion for the project no. maybe to have perspective. And, and the I don't shit know. ran down to him, and he was like, they were both, like, spoiled children who knew they were never going to experience repercussions for this. The studio was always going to have their back. So right. I just had to deal with it. But it ends up kind of just killing all three of their careers. Yeah. I mean, Carpenter keeps making movies. Right, but... and then Sam Neill gets to make Jurassic Park the following year. That's funny like it's not like he becomes an a-list leading man but no, he no, does but... have the fucking biggest blockbuster no it's a year of, later of the, of the early Park. Yeah. he's also the best thing in this movie so he at is. least acting wise and so. a year, a year later is also the piano like a year later he's he in has the, his well, fucking and, heavy duty oscar movie and his giant colossal the other thing is that that and he's basically kind of co-first choice to play james bond yes right and they go with pierce brosnan for i think a variety of reasons but like that was also he yeah. was right there. He was right there. You know, like, yeah. Well, he's good. I I got no beef with. He's Sam good. I Seems mean, like there, a nice guy. There's the scene where um, uh, Chevy is in theory holding him up at gunpoint, right? Yep. And then you do your reveal where it's like, okay, you see Chevy, right? Then Chevy's not there anymore. Then you see just the gun to Sam Neill's head, and, and he's leaning way back. Like, how is he still upright in that? That's scene? the fucking thing. So that scene when Chevy, when when Sam Neill is playing, being held at gunpoint, and he's walking through the hallways of like the offices and whatever. You're like, this is unbelievable physical acting. Imagine how good this movie would be if the other people who had to play these scenes were committing this part. Yeah, you know who are working with the effects and with the gags. And he's like playing the stakes of the thing. He's playing the tension of the thing. But he's really making you believe that there's an invisible man there. And it's not a digital effect. It's very clear there is just a gun glued to his head. And yes. he's just selling it himself. Yeah. Yeah. But it makes sense that like, to a certain degree, obviously the carpenter wants to work with him again. But to someone like Spielberg, you're like, well, this guy is going to do the work. Like, there are all those stories about how when Jurassic Park was bought, they were like, I don't know, is it Harrison Ford? Do we do it with, like, the biggest stars? And Spielberg was like, the star of the movie is dinosaurs. Either we pull off the effects or we don't. But that's what people are going to come to see. So let's just hire three really good actors who are not going to be divas and are going to just do the work in what will be a very laborious process. 
And to a certain degree, doing an Invisible Man movie, you kind of need to do the same thing. Yes. You need to hire Elizabeth Olsen, who still wants to, like, do the work Elizabeth around Ma- Moss. Excuse me. Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss. You want to get in the Moss. Um, but, uh, but, but she's going to fucking show up and go through Wait, this very what? difficult process. What is what is that movie not really concerned with? Uh, the practical everyday realities of being invisible that is yes but also visual effects like the visual effects in that movie are really simple yeah like not like they're like this i mean they're they're like this but in a digital era where you could get away with so much more they're not show off they're simple gags you know yes. right it's a knife floating in the air yeah. it's the most like effective imagery. it's impactful yeah um it's it did looks, you see the lee Wannell? i did not no. yeah. i love it movie. it's it's good big fan um it's better than memoirs of an invisible man it is like in in all the years you guys have been doing this, like mm-hmm. how low down does this particular movie rank? I'm just curious. I, 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 We've done some real stinkers. I yeah, would not put this yeah, at the bottom. Yeah. Okay, there are movies that make me angry, and there are movies that fail to elicit any sort of response. There or aren't interest that in movie many movies where a character puts up brown face to play a cab driver, <laughs> yeah, which um, we have not mentioned. It is incredible. Yeah, because yes. you're like at least Chevy's made it this far without doing anything that's <laughs> aged poorly. <laughs> And then, boy, does he ever. Oh, God. It's just so unnecessary because he's playing a cabbie. Yeah. yeah. But he doesn't have to have no, he doesn't. brown makeup on it his face. Really he really feels have, like a Chevy pitch. Yeah, exactly. He could just have the regular old makeup on his face that he had earlier. Yeah. Yep. Um, or, but, or use some of the liquid paper that Alice had, like in her line of makeup stuff when yes. the camera pans across it. Something. Yes. But the brown um, face, no. No, don't do it, Chevy. Um, and, and it's so late, too. Like you said, like, you're like, all right, we're like, and Chevy's again, not- it's like, <laughs> wait, you're, tr- you want to do this weighty, serious existential thriller, and you're in fucking brown face. Right. I, I found some quote from him where he was like, you know, they kept on writing gags, and I was like, I want to lean into the adventure of this thing. Adventure was the word he kept using. Adventure. I want the audience to see me. I think they're going to join me on this journey into becoming a different type of star. I want to do adventure. And it's like, you know what adventure requires, Chevy? Long hours. <laughs> right. A bunch of people just said yes. Yeah. To everything. To everything. And then it's just a movie that isn't anything. It's just a mix of a bunch of shit. Here's, I don't yeah. know. It's Here's wild. an interesting thought I He's had. He's contradicting himself constantly. Yes. He's like, I don't want to be funny. I want to be serious. I want it to be an adventure. Yes. Like, I also want the premise to be boring, essentially. I don't think like, a clear enough vision. I mean, the other wow. thing with Chevy Chase is like, he was uh, uh, heir to a massive, massive fortune who resented being a rich kid and was like, mm. oh, I want to be in the dirt with real people. And then got very quickly tired of everything he ever tried to do, all of which he was very successful at. He would just get so ornery. Like, he wouldn't want to work for it, you know? And he was just like, yeah, I don't know. I'm bored of being a movie star. I don't know, dude. Then shut up. Like, then don't do <laughs> movies. Whatever. Well, fortunately, this movie absolves him of being a movie star. It does. It, and, it and, relieves and him then, of the burden. And then he becomes angry about the fact that he's not a movie star this, anymore. This is, the, this is what we're talking about. Right. He seethes. He watches yeah. whoever in 1992 is eating his lunch. I mean, Bill yeah. Murray kind of comes back. That's the other thing. Bill Murray Bill was Murray, gone for five years. But whoever it is. Yeah. And he's like, well, I'm better than that guy. I want to do something. And then they're like, okay, what do you want to do? I want to do this. All right, well, we'll see you for the next 20 weeks. Wow, what? Like, that's a lot of work. Like, the, the community thing. Yeah. Like, well, I know better than you. Okay, Chevy. I also don't want to be on the show that much. And I don't want to do the work. And, like, I'm not going to read this guy's, right. like, uh, yeah. you know, coverage. Right. Or like, 
and I won't show up for like, remember Harmon hated him for like not doing the final bit in the video game episode, yes. right? Yes. Like yes. Harmon yes. says like, that broke my heart. That right. was this big thing. And Chevy was like, fuck you. He just doesn't want to put in the effort to be better. He just, also, I mean, know, I'm to, being really mean to Chevy Chase on this episode. But we have to. It, I, look, it, it's the obvious comparison point you have to keep on going back to. But for all the stories about Bill Murray being this like aloof, dude who can be really nasty and fuck with people you know mm-hmm. and like you cannot get him on the phone you cannot get him to commit he'll quit projects in a mercurial way he by all accounts when he is on a movie does the fucking work like he is a guy who actually likes the process of making movies and is collaborative if he enjoys the process of uh, the project you know and like cares a lot about being there off camera for other actors to give them something to play off of and Chevy feels like a guy who treats the act of filmmaking the way a Chevy Chase character treats whatever ostensibly the movie is supposed to be about. Where it's yeah. like, I don't know, who fucking gives a shit about this? There is an interesting, you know, I love my sort of like pulling together accidental trilogies of like a weird trend at a time where Hollywood was trying to do a thing that never worked, right? Right. There is a weird analog to this movie in Vampire in Brooklyn. Oh, which is when is that? It's three years later. 95, it's 95. Right. It's the last Eddie Murphy Paramount project it is essentially the movie that a- kills Eddie Murphy until Nutty Professor brings him back. And again, of course, he's also working with a horror tour. In Absolutely. West Cra- Cra- and it's a craven. My God. A project where people can't decide. Is it funny for a horror movie? Is it more you scary know? for a comedy? Right. And he kind of is like, I'd like to play a villain. I'd like to not be Eddie Murphy. There's a reason I hired Wes Craven. And they were like, but it's going to be the comedy about like, how do you brush your fangs? Right. Yeah. Like there's that weird balance of it. And it's like, what's the third movie in this trilogy? Right. And I've always talked about the trilogy of the let's make a uh, fucking uh, hypersexual literary monster movies of the 1990s. The first strike at doing Dark Universe, which is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and um, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the third one in that equation, which you always say is kind of different is more in line with this, which is Mike Nichols' Wolf, where it feels like that movie can't decide if it's a satire about, like, what's the modern-day version seen of this monster? Wolf? I have not. Is that the one where the, the Nichols. Jack Nicholson nodding meme is from? That's... Where he's saying, where he's just going, yes. I think that's Anger Management. That is from Anger Management. The okay. one where he has the yellow eyes is Wolf. Okay, there you go. Wolf yeah. also has a notorious scene where I feel like it's kind of like the Meet Joe Black uh, car accident scene that, like, Every six months, someone's like finds it on YouTube and is like, "What is this?" Right, where, where he pees on someone's shoes yes. and he's like, "I'm marking my territory." Right. <laughs> uh, the thing with Wolf is, there's a concept you kind of get it, but then Mike Nichols clearly so much is so disinterested in shooting action, right? That the action is shot in super slow mo because they clearly have like right fifteen Five seconds, seconds. <laughs> right. And then the other movie on the other end of this that predates those two, but I think is like the uh, if you combine this with Wolf, it's the third film in the trilogy. I would argue is Scrooge, directed by Richard Donner, who almost does this, mm-hmm. where it's like here's a guy who does not have the background in comedy, right? Who's done effects, who's done drama, who's done action, who's done like spectacle. And he wants to do a comedy. And the idea is, can we elevate this to like mythical status with this funny man, this well-established persona? And there's a weird battle in that movie between like Bill Murray comedy and like overly designed set pieces. What do you think is screwed? A big, bigger hit than any other movie. Much bigger. Uh, I've seen it once. It did not leave a big impression. No, I'm not a big fan of you watch it and you go like this should be a slam dunk. 
This is so it really obvious. should be. Yeah, it really should. Be. And I think there is that weird incompatibility of like, what does the movie star want to be at this point in time, and a director who's an odd match for the material yes. and all that sort of shit. Um, yeah. But yeah. I just remember seeing this movie in a theater, and like I said, me and my best friend Mike, we love Chevy. We saw mm-hmm. all of his stuff. We go to this. We're very excited. The trailer has obviously made it look like a comedy with and amazing just, special yes, effects. And we're just like, what is this? Be funny. You know, it's like Homer Simpson banging on the TV, like be funnier. Yeah. We just wanted the version that Ivan Reitman wanted to make. Right. What you're describing also, right. It is because like me going and watching it and being like, I know this thing is famously kind of not a comedy. Right. I'm still kind of like, geez, this is really not a comedy. It is crazy to imagine what you're describing. Sitting down being like, all right, Chevy. What do you got? You know, give me your heat. Let's get those molecules back. (laughs) Right. And then like half an hour in just sort of being like, why is there no jokes? But then the weirdest thing is this movie still does have more jokes than something like Crocodile Dundee 2 where you're like, but now the jokes (laughs) stick out. The jokes don't fit with the rest of what this movie's doing. Yep. I find well, it kind there's of there's a hole in his dick that one time. Yes. God, that's the fantasy where he's got right. where he's got a black hole. Yep. His extended dream sequence. I will admit, as a kid, I was like obsessed with Invisible Man stories and the, the Universal movie. I think I, I would get very hung up on the logic of monster movies. And like I went through a weird like Jekyll and Hyde phase, you know? I, I was always really like fascinated by transformation movies. Yeah. And I think asking those sort of questions about like what happens when you're invisible. I, just the fact that this movie is taking the time to bother to be like, oh, the food is visible until it's digested. Right. There's some part of my brain that still gets activated by that where I enjoyed watching this, even though it is a misshapen calamity. Can't say I enjoyed watching this. I do own it now. <laughs> I do too. It was only one dollar more to own classic than classic iTunes thing. Yeah, wow. rent, it for, rent it for four. They're like, just buy it for five. And I'm like, you guys, right. you bought it. It's an extra dollar. dollar. That shit. You should never watch that ever again. I'm gonna Why watch it again. I'm gonna watch the effects again. I'm gonna go to some of my favorite scenes. <laughs> That's insane. Should we That's play the just, just watch Richard game? the Richard scenes again and try to figure out like, is he being dubbed? Like, it feels as if someone else is doing that. Like. Like Andy really McDowell and Greystoke. The it, first time I saw Garth Brangie's Dark Place, I assumed the same with Matt Barry. Right. Like, like, yeah, no the joke like is that this. the guy's poorly dubbed. And then you realize oh, the guy can just fucking do that. Did this guy ever act again? The other thing is he looks like the, he, he uh, visually this actor, for those of you who are not watching this movie in preparation for this episode, which good on you. Uh, he looks like the guy who would play like the dude at the country club that Chevy fucks with in flesh. Yeah, he's got right? an ascot. He's got long right. blonde hair, right. sort of he's, Roman he's nose. He's very, right, like sort of blue blood looking. And then this voice comes out of him and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. He's George Martin's son. He might just have an incredible way of uh, controlling his voice. I don't know. Yeah. Um, he did act for a few years after this. In fact, he's in something called Lily's Light, the movie that's credited as being from 2020, but it also in 2010. So this may just be IMDb being okay. stupid. Okay. Um, the box office game, Griffin. The box I office think. game, Griffin. Well, oh, do we boy. have any final thoughts on the movie? Bad movie. Alan, more, any more thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not good, but I mean, do, do we talk enough about like its impact on Carpenter since this is in theory the Carpenter miniseries? Its impact seems to kind of just be like in the interviews at the time, he's like, I think it's good that I'm not doing a horror movie. Like I, I like branching out. It was his first movie in forever that didn't have John Carpenter's blank on it. And part right. of that is because it, the, the 
actor of this movie is Chevy, for better or worse. Absolutely. Part of it, too, is that he wanted to be like, look, I can do fucking other genres. Before this movie came out, he was like, look, they're offering me bigger projects. That, that's it, the, the quote where he's like, for once in my life, I'm not just getting horror scripts. And right. then it's like, his next two movies were horror movies. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Mouth the, of Madness and, uh, right. you know, Village the of the The settlement of the Alive deal is that he makes a deal with Universal, who, of course, were supposed to be the home video TV sales output for the Alive films, where he has a higher budget but more control. And then he goes back and does uh, more Carpenter genre movies for Universal that flop. Like, it's like he just... The, the other side of this movie is him trying to go back and do the thing that everyone liked in the 80s and it never works as well again. But he doesn't get to elevate to the the new levels of studio filmmaking that he hoped this movie would at least yeah, we cynically. Really, this is the thing, Alan. To. We've done, this is I think the 12th episode, yeah. but we've done 11 episodes where it's basically always like, what a picture. And yeah. like, picture. the narrative is like, oh, maybe people didn't like it at the time. Right. Maybe it didn't yes. make enough money. But still, everyone in the room is just kind of like, wow, hell yeah. of a film. And now pretty much every movie that we're going to do, Mouth of Madness, I think, is very well liked. That's the one. But the rest of them, you know, Escape from L.A. is kind of bananas. I guess some people go to the bat for that. But it's mostly going to be us wrestling with like, oh, he's like trying to get the magic back and he doesn't quite have it. Like I, we talked about this. I'd probably wax too long about this without ever settling on a real cohesive point. But in the they, they Live episode, we were talking about like tonal weirdness, especially when it comes to genre movies. Right. And how some people don't know what to do when a movie is like combining different elements and you have high camp and comedy along with like violence or gore or whatever it is. And Al Carpenter was a guy who always had his hand really firmly on that dial yeah. that he was able to make a lot of different energies gel. And that arguably the two movies where people kind of push back on it were They Live and um, Big Trouble, where the reviews are like, why is some of this so fucking cartoony, right? Mm. Those movies have both aged well. But I do feel from this moment on, accepting uh, Mouth of Madness, all the movies are like, is he in on the joke or not, right? Like when people talk about Escape from L.A., when they talk about Ghosts of Mars, when they talk about vampires, even the people who defend it. They're like, I don't know. You kind of can't tell if he's just like being swallowed up by the ridiculousness of the thing or if he's being kind of canny about it. And up until this point, you always know that he's pulling off exactly what he wants to do. This is the movie that maybe breaks his tonal dial a little. Yeah. Chevy Chase broke him. That's that's sad. He's not not the only one. As he did many people. I mean, there's that incredible story that like, you know fucking Spielberg, Spielberg mentored Chris Columbus, Spiel, right? Spielberg. Spielberg. <laughs> you gotta watch out for him. Big bad Beatles Spielberg. We're out of Spielberg license plates. Uh, <laughs> Spiel, Spielberg uh, uh, mentors uh, Chris Columbus after he writes this uh, spec script and then he has him develop all these other Amblin scripts for him. And then he was like, you should be a director, right? And the what was, I believe, supposed to be his debut film was Christmas Vacation. Um, sure. Okay. He like was right. selling the studios, bring him in development meetings, and he goes on to Christmas vacation and I believe calls Spielberg like a weekend and is like, Chevy is going to break me. I cannot handle this. Like, am I sabotaging my career and shooting myself in the foot if I stick with this because it probably will be a hit, but he just yeah. I never recover and from Everyone with at him. that point is so like we know that they're like you know what? There's this. Uh, John Hughes has this Home Alone right. script. Just why don't you just? Make it's a this mulligan. Instead? No one will yeah, hold yeah. it against you if you quit a Chevy movie, and he right, does, and right. his career is fine. Whereas the people who finish a Chevy movie <laughs> maybe kind of never come back. Oh boy, uh, sad. He is just such a piece of shit. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I, 
I like his movies. Fletch is good. Fletch, Fletch is good. Fletch is working overtime. I and but like, what are the other Chevys that you would go? Because like you're saying, you were the biggest Chevy fan. Yeah, I, love, I mean, I think he's probably the fourth person you remember in Caddyshack. That's but he's that, great. But, but that's more because yeah. Dangerfield and Murray and Ted and, Knight and are Knight. so good. But that also are. might be the exact right amount of Chevy in a movie. Right. Yeah. At least through good. a modern he's good. eyes. Yeah, he's and good. I, I, right. I love the vacation movies, you know, especially, especially the first one. He's good in them. He's, he's great in them. You know, yeah. and, the first two. Yeah, and yeah. Fletch, Fletch, I loved at the time, and Fletch Lives is, is a disaster. Um, Fletch Lives is sort of indefensible. No one has a Fletch Lives <laughs> is I good take. throw right? something out, though? The vacation movies are the only movies where he allows himself to be a little low status. Yes. Like yes. shit happens to Gus Griswold. Clark? Yeah. Clark. Clark. Uh, Gus is the kid. Um, like he still tries to keep his like Chevy Ross sarcastic. Why did I say Gus? Um, he still tries to keep his like above it all quips, but like he fucking falls down and things hit him and he's embarrassed. I think that's why they've aged better because like in this day and age, no one wants to see a comedy leading man who is just an asshole who wins. Yeah. And he's in the handsome asshole. It's sort of like, it's like the inverse of Dangerfield. like right. Dangerfield. They didn't unlock him as a movie star until he started playing rich guys. Right. And once he's a rich guy, Oh, everything else about him is right. funny. Right. Chevy's right. kind of the opposite. He's too perfect. Yes. Like we need to take him down a peg a little right. bit. But in, in fucking Caddyshack, you can have him play golden boy and it's not insufferable because he only has to do 25 minutes of the movie. Yes. Um, and I like him in Community. I really yeah, I do. do. I yep. do too. Pretty much everything about that performance, I like. It's great the whole time. It, the whole time you're watching it, you know there's all this stuff right. churning behind the scenes. Yes, awful, but, I mean, indefensible. My stuff. favorite Community episode is the Dungeons and Dragons He's episode, and it's a, a incredible performance. It is both a yes. great comedic and dramatic performance. It is so scary yep. and so mean. And, and now it no, it doesn't exist unless you own the DVDs. Is that true? It's really gone. Yes. I know it got pulled from. Yes, because of the 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 Ken Jeong and Blackface. Yes. Are they going to make a community movie? Would he be in it? I can't imagine he would be in it. Um, I feel like it would probably be like the five who were there at the end. But Donald Glover went back and did that. I remember Glover kind of made noise about like, like, oh, we're having a good time doing this live read. Right. Yeah. He was so good in it. And then he was telling all these stories afterwards that were just like, oh, you have like fondness for this. I don't know. Who knows if they ever fucking make it? I mean, it's bizarre that also just like between Rick and Morty and the Avengers movies. Yeah. Or even Justin Lin as the backup director. It's like there's enough juice behind it that you want to believe from a creative side. If they want this to happen, they get it made as a one for me, one for them. Right. Yes. Deal. But I think Harmon has talked a few times about how he's having a hard time cracking it. So, but he's also working on so many projects now that. Yeah. Um, Box office game. The movie came out February 28th, 1992. Not a confident release slot. So like as much as the studio may have once been into this, they are dumping this movie. Mm-hmm. It opened to $4 million. Okay. It made 14. I think it cost 40. It's so a, no one's happy. No. And They Live cost three. Like he's made two, three movies right. in a row. It makes They Live's gross. Right. But costs like 10 times as much. How, how does this compare to like the... The Thing or Starman, like, well, like kind of the other studio stuff and, he's done. And uh, uh, The Thing are both in like 20s, right? This, this is The Thing. This it's not like, like almost from, twice as much as anything he's ever done. Apart okay. from Halloween, which is like just an insanely profitable movie. Right. Yeah. John Carpenter does not make hugely successful movies. Right. But yes, uh, you know, Starman made 28. 
Right. I think everyone was okay with that. Right. You know, but that was sort of the high end of I his think like that studio cost, output. Like, 10 or something. Right. Um, and then and Big Trouble and Thing cost like 25 and Big both Trouble bombed. was, right, it made 11. Yeah. But then, right, They Live in Prince of Darkness both make around 14. Right. Everyone's happy. It right. didn't cost anything. And, and the whole point of his live deal was like, even if it bombs in theaters, eventually his movies make profit on TV and VHS. Like you're playing long game with him. But this $40 million is a whole different budget strata for him. Um, number one at the box office is a comedy film that I'm sure we all have seen and loved. It's in its third weekend. It's still... Yeah, no, no. It's in its third weekend. It's a huge hit. Three weeks at number one for a comedy. Three weeks at number one for a comedy that's... Ben's uh, trying to sneak a peek. That's com- is, is it... It's not Groundhog Day, is it? No, it's not that good. Right. But it's... Groundhog Day is 93. 93, I think. Yeah. yeah. But it's um, certainly a major comedy star uh-huh. emerging from Saturday Night Live, much like the stars of Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Is it Man Billy and- Madison? No. Wayne's World? Wayne's World. Oh. Wayne's World. Right. That movie comes out in like January? That movie came out in early February. Wow. First weekend, it made 18. Second weekend, it made 11. Third weekend, it's making nine. Like, it it's 130? just... Yes. Um, did you see Wayne's World? In I did see Wayne's World. Yeah, no, this was like my senior year of high school. I was like going to, and I had a car. So we went to the movies like all the freaking time. You know what movie is great? Hit Wayne's me. World. <laughs> it's real yes. good. Our, our friend, uh, uh, Rob Shear, a friend of the podcast, sure. yeah. he brought up a great point to me, which is like Wayne's World is one of the only movies of that era that is like a boys will be boys comedy that has no homophobia in it. That's interesting. Like there was some Wayne's were probably yeah weirdly largely unproblematic because it's yeah. sort of just goofy and innocent. Right, like, like I yeah, absolutely like, look. There are things I'm sure people will correct us and say right, this and that, right, but I right. do think that movie is like so weirdly good hearted. Because well, like that's the thing with um what's it called Bill and Ted where you watch it and you're like I love this. This is so. Yeah, we showed sweet. it to the kids right. and I literally had to like have the mute button the way, at, at the ready for thing. that one bit. Right. Like, yes. It's like, not just that it's like, aged poorly, but it's like it feels like an opposition to everything the characters have been established as up until that point. Just, and yes. like Wayne's World has that consistency of like there is a pureness to the worldview of these guys. Like they are good. They are good people. It's a fucking masterpiece. Wayne's World rules. Love it. I know. Would love to do Penelope Spheres one day. Hey, she was on the bracket. She was on the bracket. She was on the bracket. Number two, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Number three. Now it's a comedy that I'm sure was a big Razzie winner. Can you imagine how angry Chevy is about that? By the way, that's yeah, like, getting his ass kicked by like the I'm, fourth. I'm the first Chevy type SNL like, leading man. <laughs> yes. I've been a proven movie star for 15 years. It's a 40 million dollar movie, and here's a sketch adaptation from a guy who was on the show for six years and was never the big breakout star of the show? Um, this feels like a Ben movie. I think you've shouted this out before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is like a very memorable in the rental store cover. That's true. What genre? A, a comedy, but it's starring an action star. Uh, is it Oscar? Mm. Oscar? No, it's not Oscar, but that's the correct actor. So it's Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Oh, boy. Oscar's a better movie than Stop Her It's also, it's a funnier More ambitious. Great cover. Yeah. He's doing the Buster Keaton. Right. Yeah. Harold yeah. Lloyd, yeah. yeah. Um, but but, the cover um, of this one is still pretty well, good. Well, the too. cover of this one is just every fucking background poster gag on 30 Rock of a Tracy <laughs> Jordan. Like, the poster is just exactly what the movie is. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, there's no artistry to the poster. The poster is just, yeah. the mom's got a gun. She's pointing it at the person looking she at looks the poster. delightful. <laughs> right. She looks like, you know. Still, what is the premise of this movie? Getty. Oh, it is Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. I mean, this is also, I know you have to leave Alan. I'll say this as quickly as possible. 
and uh, add time to it by saying I'll say this as quickly as possible. It is a, a phenomenon I love, which is in France, American comedies always get translated to titles like this, where it is the main character exclaiming something. <laughs> like every French comedy title is like, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Uh, it is, it, it's just uh, a, a, great, a great way to title a comedy, I think, is what would the character be saying if they were trying to convince you to pay attention to what they're doing right now? Number four at the box office is a mm-hmm. film that comes up on this podcast once in a while. I think Basic Instinct is released in a few weeks, so we, okay. we've done some of these movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a it's a what they called a chick flick back hmm. in the day, hmm. but it's sort of like you know, kind of a serious literary movie. It's based on a hit book, Fried Green, Fried tomatoes. green tomatoes. Yeah, how Six. do you just find Fried Green Tomatoes? Look, that was a period of time where they that said, was a kind of movie you can get a bunch of good heavyweight actresses and put them in a movie about uh, women uh, crossing over generational gaps. Right, and telling each other stories and learning things. And right. Like, now it would be a 10-episode Netflix miniseries. Yeah, that and would, it gets way through a lifetime. Yeah, right. right like, yes. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just like, you know, that's a movie about listening to your elders. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't even know how to define it. And you're like, the biggest box office draw in that movie at the time is Jessica Tan Coming off an Oscar Popping in <laughs> <Yeah>. her 90s. <laughs> <laughs> number five of the box office is a movie that I've never seen, but we will do one day because the director has mostly made hit blank check films. Okay. Um, but this is the one in his career that you kind of forget about. It's in between. Well, it comes after two of his hugest hits. Is it Medicine Man? Medicine. <laughs> John McTiernan's Medicine Man with Sean Connery and Lorraine, Lorraine Bracco. Bracco. Yeah. The, the, Melfi. The big two. Yeah, <laughs> everyone was waiting. When's Connery going <laughs> to unite with Bracco? It's, it's also just a funny look at the poster for that, which is like Connery, Bracco. Like it's, yeah. he, Brock, and Connery's like got his hands on his hips. I'm the medicine yeah. man. And like also Lorraine Bracco is here. And it's like <laughs> Predator, Die Hard, yeah. Hunt for Red October, Medicine Man. <laughs> and then you've got La- Last Action right. Hero, which is the, the then classic you got like balance. big yeah. flops. It's just. That's his only movie that doesn't exist, and it's starring one of the most legendary movie stars of all time. Uh, I don't. It's, I think I saw that in the theater too, because I think we were hoping it would be like a romancing the stone type. What is of the thing, premise of that movie? Was, he's a, he's a medicine man. What does he do? He she is like a pharmaceutical rep, and he's like a researcher in the Amazon. And they ha- she has to, like, get something from Like him. some wonder drug that can cure 16 S- things. Exactly. And then it's, like, an odd couple, I assume, romance. So it's, like, Jungle Cruise. Connery's old enough, Think? Huh? It's, like, Jungle Cruise. You gotta no! find the flower that will... No! Stop! Stop! The flower <laughs> that will cut, cure all illnesses. <laughs> we don't even have to say what this flower can do, because the answer is it can do everything. No one will ever get sick if we have this flower. I'm uh, just saying, I did my own research, and I think... <laughs> You don't need to get vaccinated if you have the flower from Jungle Cruise. Griffin. I did my own research. <laughs> Griffin, no. Uh, some other movies. The Hand, Rocks, Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Uh, big hit. Big hit. Um, Good one. Movie called Final Analysis. I don't know this movie. I'm looking it up. I feel like I've seen this. Uh, neo-noir erotic thriller with Richard Gere and Kim Basinger. There you go. Sort of a you know, Hitchcock knockoff thing. Okay. All right. Beauty and the Beast. Big hit. Mississippi Masala, which is a great movie. Denzel. Uh, Den- early Denzel, Mira Nair movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Prince of Tides. One day we'll do it. We have to. And which takes us back to Lorraine Bracco because Tony eventually gives. Oh, I don't want to spoil oh. it. Griffin, Griffin's watching Sopranos now. For the first I'll, I'll time. shut up. Right. Okay. For the first and time. then 35 Up, the latest in the Michael Apted Up 
series. Opening it where? Is uh, this... It's at number 11. Wow. Made $312,000. Wow. This weekend or in total? In total. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, funny. No. Could I speak on the Prince of Tides? Of course. You're, you're, you're yourself. Are Starring Prince the sexiest man alive, Nick Nolte. Damn right. So we had to read that book and I was like, not going to read it. So I got the movie and the movie stunk too. So I don't know anything about it. We should, we should watch it though someday. A necessary <laughs> interjection from our finest film critic. A final note. <laughs> it was way too boring. I couldn't film get critic. into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're going to do it. I mean, uh, uh, Marie uh, Barty uh, constantly, uh, I'd say on a weekly basis now texting us, we got to do Barbara. Babs. It'll be quick and brief. Quick, yep. and, quick and easy. As quick long as we talk about the mall some more. Yeah, yeah we got to talk about the mall. Bonus episode on the mall. We're going to it. Oh, yeah, man. that's a Patreon goal now. <laughs> How? We open a storefront. <laughs> We're going to break but, in. Like, the Patreons so where they would have to like pay for your bail. Yeah, we too. open a storefront. <laughs> Idiotic <laughs> podcast hosts bail. arrested yeah. in, yes. in, in attempt yeah. to yeah. meet Patreon goal. <laughs> We're like in front of a judge. Well, podcasting, it's kind of like radio, but it's stored on your phone. Now, I know that. Well, Patreon, right. it's kind of like a per person. <laughs> but, but what's the premise? <laughs> what's the premise of the show? Well, we started out like, it was like, what if the Star Wars movie? I just tried to. I know. In front of like a night court, you know? Yeah. Like, anyway, we're done. Alan. Yes. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, it's it's Mouse. been my pleasure. It's it really, fun. I've been talking with David for like a while about coming on and. I'm glad we could finally make this you gotta happen. Come back, yeah. I have some problem now. Gotta come Anytime. back. Anytime. And we'll let you do a better movie next time. You just you gotta learn your lesson. Don't offer <laughs> yes. to do the one. That I, no, I. It was a rookie mistake. I'm stupid. I I know better now. I'll tell you off, Mike Allen, because it's a little ways away. We'll see. We had a very big guest star potentially like floated to us. Yeah. And we sent the list of like six movies of which there were like five big beloved classics and one absolute stinker. And this very notable person wrote back, essentially, I only want to do The Stinker. Oh. I have no interest in this director's other films. I'm a big fan of this movie that no one likes. Excellent. That'll be a good one. Magnificent. Yeah. Um, so sometimes it happens. But more often, it's what you're doing, which is, I'll happily do any of these five. And we're like, you're doing the fifth. No, one. and I've been listening to the whole miniseries. And it's like every episode at some point, either you will talk about like, the incredible run Carpenter is on and then comes Memoirs of an Invisible Man or one of the guests will say, well, at least I'm not doing Memoirs of an Invisible yep. Man and I'm here like, yep, I'm the schmuck who's doing it. Uh, oh, yeah. Hey, but but that's, we need we needed you to make this episode sing, Alan. Um, people should check out your work on Rolling Stone. You're yes. constantly writing good shit. Um, is what's Alan watching? Can I still go to the blog spot? It, it, the blog spot still exists. Oh, yeah. You know, it hasn't been taken down. It hasn't you really been understand. updated. Every day, 15 year old David going to his blog spots. <laughs> it's sort of funny to imagine that now, you know, yeah. click on your individual little blog spots. Yeah, yeah not going out. on social media, just going straight there. So, yeah, yeah you yeah. can find me on Rolling Stone on social media. I have my own podcast, which is on hiatus right now, but should be coming back hopefully later this fall. Cool. called Too Long Didn't Watch, where every episode, uh, a, a star including the uh, aforementioned John Hamm. Hey. Yes, we will, we will pick a show that they have never seen before. We see the first episode and the last episode and nothing in between, and they have to figure out what the fuck happened. Oh, so, that's, that's a cool thing. John Hamm watched Gossip Girl. Alison Brie watched uh, Game of Thrones. Kumail Nanjiani watched Veronica Mars. You know, Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally watched My So-Called Life. So, And we've got a whole bunch of great, great new pilot. ones coming up for the second season. That's awesome. My So-Called Life is an all-time pilot. It is. Incredible pilot. I like the show, but the pilot's incredible. 
Eventually, uh, I will have all of like Chevy Chase's former co-stars right. on the podcast, but I'm guessing after this, Chevy will not want to come on. No, but but I think that's the way to do it is to talk to everyone but uh, Chevy. Yes. That, that seems to be the way that the best oral histories get put together <laughs> as well. If you just do not let his voice enter the picture. Yeah. And you let everyone else speak for him. Chevy, Chevy, we love it when you fall down, uh, yeah. but I wish that you were falling, falling for me. Would be nice. Uh, and and look, he took his biggest fall ever on this movie from Grace. Well, well put. Thank, thank you. you. Yes, very and, good. And thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank mm-hmm. you to the aforementioned Marie Barty for our social media, uh, Pat Rounds and Joe Bowen for our artwork, uh, JJ Birch and Nick Loriano for our research, AJ McKeon and Alex Barron for our editing go to blankies.red.com for some real nerdy shit and go to patreon.com slash blank check for blank check special features where we are doing the mummy movies uh tune in next week for next week is tune in next week tune in next week oh boy for uh mouth of madness right next week is in the mouth of madness maybe the last good one people we'll, we'll, we'll see i'm excited i'm excited to watch uh, and as always, uh, Chevy Chase really is an asshole. I just we should just stay it again. Hot take.